It's a positive film. It has heroes and villains, and uh, that it essentially uh, is a fun movie to watch. It's been a long time since people have been able to go to the movies and see a sort of straightforward, wholesome, fun adventure. Well, it's a fantasy. It's not science fiction so much as it is space fantasy, and it's about people. It's about. It's finally about people and not finally about science. The story, when you actually put it into words, is only so much nonsense to hang a great visual experience onto. It's the stuff that fairy tales are made of. Sort of boiling down religion into a very basic concept: uh, the fact that there is some deity or some power or some force. That sort of controls our destiny,、uh, works for good and also works for evil. Marvelous, healthy innocence, great taste, wonderful to look at, full of guts, nothing unpleasant. I mean, people go bang bang and people fall over and are dead, but you know, no horrors. A sort of wonderful freshness about it, a kind of like a wonderful fresh air. It's got whatever you want it to be. It's a, it's pure entertainment. It's like a roller coaster ride, and it can be interpreted as long as you enjoy it, which is the intention. Hello, welcome back to Generation Skywalker. This is the current those old fossils episode. Joining me tonight, I have got Mark Daniels. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. I've got a feeling our topic tonight. You're probably someone I know is going to have quite strong views.、Uh, yeah, but I'm going to try and keep them tempered. So we're not in a temper. I'm going to try and keep <laughs> them tempered and、uh, keep a level head about it. Yeah, I did have you pegged as that one for tonight. Also <laughs> with us is Craig Spivey. Good evening, Craig. Good evening, Stuart. Now, Craig, I've got you pegged down as a, a nice calming influence on it. <laughs> <laughs> I am bringer of calm. And、uh, to make up our round table tonight, we've we've brought on a guest who I think is going to maybe drop more into the Mark side than the the Craig side here. Delighted for the first time to welcome Generation Skywalker with Lee Bullock. Good evening, Lee. Good evening, Stuart. How are you? You okay? I'm all good, mate. Fantastic to have you on. And、um, Thank you. Yeah, quite an interesting because we've got a main topic tonight, so quite an interesting to get your your thoughts on it. So I,、uh, I think you've probably got quite strong opinions of it. I've got strong opinions on everything, mate. <laughs> let, let let me tell you something, Stu. I feel like the tug bringing out the Titanic compared to Lee Bullock. <laughs> Lee, with regards to vintage collecting, I mean, it's been a tough old year. First of all, I hope you're all keeping well and your family and everyone. Yeah, yeah, we're okay. We're good okay. stuff. Good stuff. What, what,、um, how has your collecting been during the last year? Is it still moving, or is it kind of ground to a halt? I, to be honest, I, I go fairly slow anyway. I don't,、um, I, I don't go helpful either on my collection. You know, sort of. To that point, so I'm, I'm quite considered on what I get for the collection. I've been concentrating on、uh, quite a lot of bit of、uh, non-Star Wars stuff, so I've been doing Jam on Transformers、nice. here and there, and I've been concentrating a little bit on the Beyond the Toys stuff. So just getting some really odd bits, you know, some some kind of some strange pieces, you know. So、uh, one of the items I picked up. Um, this year was a、um, the very first VHS format of 
uh, Empire Strikes Back and the sleeve, I picked up the promo sleeve for it. So it's an unused promo sleeve and it's got the uh, and it's got the promotional do not not for resale printing on the back of the sleeve. And that was nice. That was a nice piece and kind of obscure. And I also picked up a a season five tops box that was unmade. That was still folded. Nice pickups. And and people who don't really know you, I mean, you like a dolly, don't you? I do like a dolly. This is true. Or a large size action figure. <laughs> you know, as it says on the box. <laughs> so yeah, I have been known. So that that's that's your main that is my main yeah, it's just my main focus. That's that's the thing that um, is always a, a mainstay in. I, you know, I dip in and out into other things, but um, that's uh, one of the one of the one of the cornerstones of my collection. Lovely. Well, I'm sure um, we'll hear more about your collecting over the over the months and years. I'm sure we will have you on plenty. Master Yoda, I promise to return and finish what I've begun. You have my word. I think we said over back in the December edition of this show that um, we don't bring up generally what we've been buying, but I think it was Grant that made the comment that sometimes the story behind an item in your collection is more important than the the item itself so that's what we've decided to do each month we're going to get three people to bring an item from their collection to the table and just give you a, a 30 second one minute kind of story about how that piece made it to the collection and those backstories we'll share them with you so um mark i'm going to come to you first uh, what have you bought? I have bought my H.W. Stewart Limited of Thornley Bank, Glasgow, licensed box of Star Wars Mallow shapes. And uh, this was a piece that I managed to uh, get off eBay about four or five years ago now. And I was just about to uh, go and pick my uh, little boy up from school, little boy as was. And I just thought, I'll check eBay just before I go out through the door. So I went on to Star Wars newly listed items and scrolled down about three or four pages. And there it was. And it's one of these pieces. And I'll just explain to you briefly what this is. It's basically a display box for some Star Wars mallow shapes. And they were orange flavoured, little triangles. One of C-3PO, one of Darth Vader, and one of R2-D2. And um, they came in this really elaborate, sort of beautifully illustrated box, display box. And it's one of these pieces and a licensee that, you know, they only did one thing. They only did this particular food item. Never did anything else. They were only available in the northern half of uh, the UK. So it was a UK-only item and northern half at that. Like I say, this beautifully illustrated box. Even back then, the work that went into the illustrations is is really quite accomplished. Whoever did this was very, very good at the job. Very good at the job. And it, it's really quite a striking piece. And it's a piece that I never thought I'd ever get because they're so rare. A lot of really long-term established collectors don't have this piece in their collection. It's very, very sought after. I managed to get it for 20 quid. And it's one of those things that I will never part with. I think I'll probably end up going to be buried with this uh, because I love it that much. Yeah, it's a very, very rare item. 20 quid. How long, how long ago did you say you got it? It's about four or five years ago now still a good price then for the time period 20 quid was just an absolute gift lovely item mate lovely um lovely lovely item worth being late for your child at the school gate oh him stand, yeah him standing there with no parent yeah well <laughs> it won't be the first time <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Lee, yes. what have you uh, come up with? I've come up with the uh, Dennis Fisher large-size action figure of Luke Skywalker. The reason I got this is for, for quite a long time, I was trying to put together a full set of the Dennis Fisher large-size action figures. So 
I'd done very well in the early 2000s with, with the large size stuff because at the time no one was really buying them. No one was really looking at them and I was getting them for absolute steals. I mean, I was I was getting a lot of 12 inch figures for under a hundred pounds each. You know, I think I remember my C-3PO, Dennis Fisher, which was close to shop stock and that was like 35 pounds. So these were really, really good bargains and I'd built all the way up to just needing Luke. Now, what was interesting about this and is if you go back to 1995 when I was collecting them, Jim Stevenson, the old school dealer from uh, from the UK, that I'm sure most people remember, he had a Dennis Fisher Luke. And I had cold feet about it at £165. This is back in 1995. It was a lot of money to me then. And I had cold feet and I didn't end up getting it. And I regretted it. You know, it's like when you see an item and minor imperfections on the on the box and et cetera, et cetera, they stick in your mind. And there's a good chance that if you were to see them again, you'd recognize them. Well, in 2010, a Dennis Fisher Luke came up on eBay. I recognized it. And I'm not 100% sure, but because memories can play tricks, but I am pretty sure that this was the one that... I turned down that I that I got cold feet on in 1995. And this, I think, turned up 15 years later. So it had done a round trip to me, a 15-year round trip to me. I ended up paying £225 for it. It's totally unused. It's It's been opened, but everything else inside is completely mint unused. Um, all the weapons are bagged. It was just a nice... A nice ending to that journey, that Dennis Fisher journey that I'd gone on. And obviously from that then, it was, I got the trade catalogue and I got the, the the priceless sheet, the Dennis Fisher priceless sheet. And then to top this off, and this is partly and also in thanks to my friend Mark, I ended up with the salesman's tie for Dennis Fisher, which is one of... It's not something I usually go for, but it's like, this is something I've got to get. And that was uh, that was just a really, really nice piece to get. So as far as I'm concerned, the Dennis Fisher ephemera, the trade catalogue and the eight 12 inch Star Wars figures made by Dennis Fisher, they form a set for me. And so that's my uh, that's that's my experience of this. So lovely, mate. Lovely story. I can just imagine you with that tie around your head, around your forehead. <laughs> <laughs> like Rambo. That's, like, yeah, that's how that's how I'm picturing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be doing that. <laughs> Craig. Yes, I'm I'm going to bring to the table Ben Kenobi pencil case by Helix. I don't think I've ever told this story. This is this is the story of how I got into Helix and stationery which was quite by accident, really. So I'm going back to the kind of late 1990s, and I lived and worked in Coventry, and a shop opened which sold uh, stamps and coins and sort of pop culture memorabilia. So I would go to this shop every kind of payday, every month, and I would treat myself to uh, a figure that I, that I didn't have. And this became a regular occurrence. It was something I used to look forward to. I saw an opportunity because this guy had set up dealing, like I say, in kind of a broad range of collectibles. And I had my childhood collection of stamps, right? So growing up in the 70s, invariably, you'd get an album for Christmas and auntie would buy a stamp album. And I kind of half-heartedly would, you know, collect stamps 
uh, and it would come and go in waves. But I, I had what I thought was quite a you know, significant international and British collection of stamps. So I saw this opportunity to go in there and basically sell him my stamp collection uh, so I could spend it straight away on Star Wars collectibles. So I, I, I fished out this uh, this album, I a couple of albums, kind of strutted into this shop thinking I'm going to be minted here. I'm going to be able to uh, walk out with something really tasty. And he... <laughs> He, uh, he he flicked through this album, you know, in silence as these dealers often do, and he sort of looked at me and he went, "Yeah, it's probably uh, probably looking at about twenty quid." <laughs> I thought I was I thought I was in for hundreds, and he said, "You know, yeah, let's let's you know if you want it in the shop now, let's call it you know twenty twenty five quid." And the only thing that was in the shop that I could afford was an old pencil case with Ben Kenobi on it, a tiny little HC Ford pencil topper um, of it's the Emperor's World Guard. So that's what I walked out with. And and little did I know at that moment what that would open uh, in terms of my collecting journey. I fell in love with it. I fell in love with that crazy wonky little illustration of Ben Kenobi. It's it sparked memories of, of sort of kids having them at school. And uh, and yeah, that was uh, that was the start of something big for me. Love it. Good story, that Craig. Yeah, that's what great. That is great. <laughs> he went back past the shop a week later, and these stamps are in the window for eight hundred quid. <laughs> <laughs> I still think you had the better of the deal there. Well, who knew? Who knew that, you know, where that would all lead to? Yeah, first yeah. steps. Yeah, great story, mate. Great story. And obviously, you and Mark went on to do your your great big Helix uh, project with Helix. Indeed. And people should check that enhanced version out in particular of your uh, your story of that. Well worth checking out. Sometimes I just don't understand human behaviour. Now, Craig, before we get on to our main topic this month, you messaged me that you had got yourself a... You've got a stairwell display cabinet? Yeah. Which is, not... <laughs> yeah. I'll let you run with, uh, with what you've been up to over the Christmas period. Yeah. It was just a little rabbit hole that I found myself down and I thought I'd drag you lot down with me. So I'm not going to dwell too much about the cabinet in and of itself. It's it's part of uh, my collecting area, which I had to improvise and be creative with, which sort of runs up the stairs and above the stairwell in the height of, um, of an apartment that doesn't have a loft. So it's a very high ceiling, but it was dead space. So I built into it. But part of what I did was I created this action figure cabinet, which sits kind of over the stairs as you walk up and as you dogleg around, you, you see this thing. But it's it's been finished, it's been painted, I vinyled it probably a couple of years ago and it's taken me oh, ages and ages to, to fill it. Um, and that's partly because I've been cross-referencing my collection with the information that's out there these days, which is which is nothing like it was when I was first putting this run together. So, you know, that was partly to check for repros, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight, but also partly just to see you know, what variants I had because that knowledge was there and I needed to know how to scratch the itch. So it's taken a long time, um, but the weekend just gone. I finally got through that double checking all that stuff and logging it. Uh, and it was time to put these figures up. Now, who on the call tonight has got a loose run? Yeah, I have a loose run. Stuart, I know you've had one in the past. I've had several in the past years it's about half full again he's getting there mark no i got rid of mine we've all had one at some point and i imagine when you've had it out on display you've put it in what is the collecting convention of release order so starting with the first uh, 12 and then running up to the last 17 or 15 uk collectors which is sort of it's what we all accept people make those cabinets don't they with the little gaps and you fill them in and they've got little coloured squares behind them and that's that's kind of how that's how it's done but casual observer 
looking at that makes no sense whatsoever um, because you know, these figures were released out of out of order and I think Luke Stormtrooper is the sort of shining example of that but what I wanted to do to book that trend is to put them into movie order release so order of appearance if you like and it threw up some interesting things and some of the decisions some of the some of the places I put these things I think are open to interpretation but I wanted to just go through it with you see if you agreed see if you'd have put these things where I've put them but also highlight a couple of unusual things that I've never noticed before until I went through this exercise so are you up for that mm-hmm. good yeah, absolutely all right so I'm not going to make this into a super long quiz but starting off first character who appears on the screen C3PO close followed by R2D2 we see stormtroopers blasting through the door in the tantive and the boarding scene and Vader follows so that all happens so the next character appear after Vader is Leah cut to Leah uh, and we have the scene with her and R2 and her evading capture. But then there's another character that comes in. Any guesses out of the whole of the 96 who I might have put in this place? Feel free to grab some reference, grab a card back if there's one. Imperial Commander. Yes. Yeah, I would have said that, yeah. Absolutely. So they, they're on the they're in the boarding party and they are there. Now, off the card, he is a generic commander uh, on the card in his, in his empire. Is it General Veers? He's, he, he belongs somewhere else, but in a loose run, that's where he goes. So from that scene, we are with the droids on Tatooine and we've got a Jawa and we encounter three more figures very early on that didn't come in that first 12. Power droid. Power droid's one. Death Star droid. There's yeah. another. R5. R5D4. And R5 is the, is the third. So while he's down as the Death Star droids, the card back and the fact that he's silver makes that character the droid that's in the Sandcrawler. You see him first, then you see Power Droid, then you've got um, R5, all in quick succession. Moving on, we meet Luke, we encounter some uh, sand people, we encounter Ben Kenobi, and then we cut back to the Death Star. Yeah. And we've got who? Death Squad Commander. Commander. Death Squad Commander. Yeah, so that's where he goes. Then we're at the cantina. Now, to do this, I obviously got Disney Plus up on the laptop, and I was freeze-framing and scrolling through. So in order of appearance in the cantina... There's a long shot where you've got Walrus Man in the foreground. Snaggletooth. Chewie. Oh! Chewie's there. The yeah. Then you've got sort of a close-up of Snaggletooth. He's just, I think he turns around as Luke's walking in. And then as it's, as it's cutting around the cantina, you've got uh, Hammerhead. And you get through all those characters before you get to Han. And then, of course, you've got Greedo. Yeah. So you've got all the way through the movie. Then the most obvious shift about comes because you've got Luke from the last 17 comes right up the front in his Stormtrooper gear, closely followed by him in his X-Wing pilot gear. Then another character from Empire. Oh, the TIE fighter pilot. TIE fighter pilot. So they're they're, um, they're in uh, in the space battle. And then towards the end of the movie, the last figure of all 96 that appears in A New Hope. Imperial Gunner. Yeah. Interesting stuff, I thought, to get to that point. Rattling through Hoth, we see Luke first, we see Han, he comes inside, we've got some rebel soldiers, and then Han takes off his snow trousers, because the next time we see him, he's walking to the command centre and he's got his Bespin gear on. Bespin, Han is right up at the front, then we see Leah, then we see our our first mustachioed uh, rebel commander. Now the next one I think is really interesting, right? So I've got, who do you think? FX7. Not FX7. 2-1-B? No, very close. B-1-2? (laughs) Ha ha! It's at this point in the movie that R2 starts scanning for Luke. Oh, yeah. 
So pop-up centroscope R2 appears here. But if you look at the figure and you look at the molding of the centroscope itself, technically he should go further down in uh, in the in the dagger machine. You only ever see that. You don't see the figure with it with it sticking up. You only ever see it some frogman. <laughs> The design, the design of the centroscope in itself is actually the Degabar one. Yeah, but the card back shows the one that's like a little radar dish. I'm not alone in finding this stuff interesting. Yeah, I've been living with this stuff for years and years, and you go through an exercise like this, and it, and it just throws up different. This is an education, Craig. <laughs> One thing I've noticed, though, Craig, yeah. is that you've kind of not done this with the special editions because shouldn't uh, shouldn't Jabba the Hutt be in there? Do you know my cabinet's not big enough? <laughs> I'm Boba Fett. I'm Boba Fett, yeah. Fett, yeah, yeah. This is a this is a despecialized edition. So the two medical droids are next, and then the attack starts, uh, and we've got the um, attack commander. He's center frame, and you've got the attack drivers kind of to the side, and he's a little bit out of focus. So strictly speaking, the commander comes first, and all the Hoth troopers. Uh, and then we get to Dagobah and we've got Yoda and then we've got Luke Bespin. I had to double check this because I wondered whether belt was different, whether he attached the belt later down the line, but he's wearing the Bespin gear on, yeah. on Dagobah. So that's two Bespin figures that we've had so far and we haven't even got to uh, Cloud City. So technically, it's best, It's Luke Skywalker Dagobah fatigues. Strictly speaking. Strictly speaking, yeah. And it's also interesting as well that the Leia Hoth um, as, as as we see it as Leia Hoth, well, all she does is take off a body warmer. That's part of her retire on, on Bespin. Okay, then we're in to the bounty hunters. There is a certain order that these appear. So you see Bosk's feet first, don't you? And then it, it pans up. And yeah. the, the scene jumps around. But I couldn't bring myself to put them in that order. So I put them in the order that you always see them. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Mm, I don't know, Craig. If you've done, if you've been really, really strict with the rest of the line, and then you've changed it in the middle, I, I think that's a bit, bit dirty. Do you? I might wake up in the middle of the night with that thought in my mind. If I wake up in the middle of the night, I might text you about it. <laughs> yeah, do that. I'll check it in the morning. You really will as well. <laughs> yeah, it just didn't feel. It didn't feel right. Put them in that crazy sort of the way they blocked that scene is just just runs counter to to my instincts. So on from the bounty hunters, we get to uh, Bespin. So the first uh, character that we encounter in Bespin, bad car pilot. Yeah, yeah. So the scene on the gantry, we've got um, Lando, then Lobot, then a couple of the guards, and we're on Bespin for a while before Leah appears. Now after after Leah Bespin, I've put another character. Who do you think I put after Leah Bespin? Oh, no. Three PO removable limbs. Yes. So I've displayed him in bits. Yeah, three PO removable limbs and then Yugnaut. That's right. And then and then that brings us to the end of Empire. So moving on to Jedi, there's a clear sequence. I think most people would get this. So you, you encounter the uh, uh, the Gamorrean guard first. Then you've yeah. got Bib Fortuna. And then, you know, again, looking at this stuff again with this exercise in mind, you start to notice things that probably not noticed before. So next up is Yakface. So Yakface yeah. is there in the background uh, as, as the droids come in. You've got Reyes in there. A man, a man. He's to the side of uh, Han when he's on the wall. And the camera goes to, to the Han in Carbonite. And uh, a man, a man turns around and looks at it. Then you're into the two droids, 88 and EV-99. You've got Squidhead comes in next. Then you get into the main characters. So which of the main characters comes in at this point? Boosh. Yeah. Boosh, yeah. Uh, yep. Then La Lando Skiff. Yep. Then Han Solo Carbonite. Yep. Then Luke Jedi. There's a little bit where you see uh, Klaatu before Luke comes in. After Luke, it's easy. Is it? 
brain freeze. <laughs> what happens to Luke after he comes in and tries to strike a deal? Well, he goes to the great pit of Carcoon. I'll put you out of your misery. It's the Rancor Keeper. I know, PV99. It's the Rancor Keeper. So then we're outside and we're off to the great pit of Carcoon. So we've got yeah. our, uh, our guys on the uh, on the skiff. What about what about um, EV ninety nine? I've said him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's been said. For sitting, sitting right next to eight D eight. I am listening. I am listening. <laughs> <laughs> so our three skiff guards. Brody. Brody. Yeah. Classic skiff guard. Well, isn't that an interesting point? The third skiff guard is Nikto. Then oh, we get to another character. R2 pop-up. R2 pop-up. Then we get to Klaatu, who is not a skiff guard at all. He's a sail barge guard, unless you sort of argue that he's protecting... <laughs> he's guarding the skiff by being on the sail barge. He's not actually a skiff guard. He runs onto the deck of the uh, of the sail barge. So then we cut to Death Star. Got three Imperials. Biker Scout. No. Now you see the Biker Scout in the um, lineup, don't you? When they come off the Imperial shuttle. Emperor, Imperial Dig. Yeah. And Emperor's Royal Guard. Biker Scout. I think you're right, Mark. So yeah, Biker Scout would come would come into that. You're right. So that landing scene's a bit, a, a bit of a, a bit of a sticky one because so many characters in the background that you could argue, well, any of the Imperial troops could have, could fit into there. ATSD driver. Yeah, that's interesting. You need to go back and freeze frame that, I think. Do because you don't actually see the Imperial dignitary. You can sort of see people moving behind. Dignitary comes later in the throne room scene. But they are there. You can see them. So you see what I mean? It's uh, Some of it's open to interpretation. So moving on we, from... We're going to let it slide, Craig, this time. No, no, no. It's a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> it's why I'm bringing my friends into the discussion. Moving on from the Imperials to the Rebels. So we've got the the briefing scene. Yeah. So there's an establishing shot of the uh, briefing room. And at the back... A-wing pilot. Yeah, you've got the pilots. B-wing pilot. You've got the A and the B-wing pilots are stood at the back in their, in their green and blue, holding their helmets. You can see rebel commandos are in there with their helmets. Then you've got like a little gang of prune faces. And then Akbar makes a bit of an entrance. And you've got Maydeen. And then you've got Lando, General. And then you see Nia Num in the background when Han and Lando are talking about the Falcon and not getting it scratched. You sort of see him wander past in his little natty waistcoat. It's the worst costume out of all of them. <laughs> I mean, it, red and blue. I mean, it's shocking. I think he looks pretty snazzy, to be honest. Right, OK, mate. Next time we see you, I want to see you in a red overalls and a blue waistcoat. I'd do it. You would yeah, as well. I would do it. Tucking your trousers into your boots is always a strong look. It is. Right. So we're now into the last uh, last row, or the top row of my cabinet. So we're into uh, Endor, and it all unravels a little bit. So. Oh, Ewoks. <laughs> this is going to suck. <laughs> This is gonna suck. So we've got, so we've got Han uh, and um, and Luke and Leah who all walk across the screen like like a Scooby Doo scene yeah. in a row. I'm gonna revisit. I've got my biker scout there. I might revisit him now after the, on the back of this conversation. So obviously the first Ewok we encounter is easy. Wicket. And then the next two kind of get. They're kind of clear. Tebow and Logray. Tebow and Paplu. Paplu is the one who jumps on the speeder bike. He was, but I'm pretty sure he's one of the ones that when they when they when they're in the net and they're in the hunting party, I think he's one of the hero costumes that's kind of waggling his spear. Willing to be correct on that, but that's kind of because the feathers are in the same arrangement. Then Logray sort of shakes them down a bit when they get to the village. Keep chirping. Yeah. And then the next three, anybody's guess. <laughs> 
where we put you with Lou, Matt, Romba and Warren? I've just I've just guessed. I've put them in pretty much in that order, Lee. Because <laughs> it becomes a very dark, mushy mess of sort of grey and brown Ewoks looking angry. You do realise that people are going to be messaging in to this and they're going to be actually telling you the exact order. I really hope so. <laughs> the exact order. So then the last one out of that lot, if we're going to move the uh, the scout trooper back to the uh, to the parade uh, scene, should be easy. Mm. Anakin. Yeah. So there you go. That's that's the original 96 vintage figures in order of appearance. How does it look? Because the sculpts, obviously, from 1978 to 1985 changed. And, and the level of sculpting changed and the technology changed. How does it look with them all mixed and matched where you've got like a small head hand in the same in the same vicinity as an Imperial gunner, which is, you know, completely different technology. You can tell that the way they sculpted that was different than the way they sculpted, let's say, for instance, small head hand. It's a really good question, Lee. So, I mean, you've got things like like the uh, the cloth cape jar in there, yeah. mixed in with the vinyl capes, which doesn't yeah. jar. We're, we're sort of used to seeing that. The Imperial Commander doesn't look out of place at all. You know, you look at little small head Han and little small head Luke Stormtrooper. I don't think they vastly apart in terms of style. A Thai pilot next to uh, an X-Wing pilot doesn't jar with me. I think it's a nice way of displaying them. I, I think mixing up those... The droids, particularly with the first 12, where you've got the Death Star droid and power droid in there with the Jowers and Luke. I think that that feels right. Having all the Hoth characters together looks right. Um, One of the most interesting ways I've, I've heard that loose figures displayed, because I think a majority of people go just on first 12, then the 20, 21. You group them together as, you know, Hoth, Bespin, so on and so forth, and Imperials together and what have you. So... What you've described, actually, it's the first time I've ever heard anybody display the figures like that, and I think it's fantastic. I'll share some pictures on the enhanced version. What I said about the sculpts, thinking about it, is maybe a bit of a moot point, because if you look at some of the sculpts that were done of the last the last 17, or last 15, as, as I prefer them, there were different sculptors for each of the, for quite a few of the figures anyway. So if you were, I think, uh, didn't Bill Lemon do ones like Yak Face out of Acetate, and then you had... Mm -hmm. Other, you add other sculptors that would come in and, and do them in a completely different medium, which in itself is going to affect how the sculpts looks. So my question about do the sculpts actually line up, you know, like for instance, you're putting an 85 figure with a 78 figure. Perhaps that doesn't really matter at all anyway on that basis. I've got an interesting fact about sculpts on figures. Uh, a friend of mine, his brother used to work at Royal Dalton, as was in Burslem, Stoke-on-Trent. And one of the sculptors that came to work for Dalton's some years ago now was actually the sculptor of a man -a man and a B-Wing pilot. If you look at the figures next to one another, you can actually totally see they were done by the same guy. Amazing. Small world. It's strange that in Soak-on-Trent, obviously because of the pottery industry, we do get freelance sculptors. There's a good chance that you are going to pull people like that to the area because of it. Another interesting fact is... An advertising agency that I used to work for once commissioned um, an artist by the name of Frank Langford, who is responsible for the Emperor's, you know, the adverts for Palatoy for the um, Mail Away Emperor. Oh yeah, and the Chewbacca and the a couple of others. He did a load of did, did a load of work for Palatoy. He uh, did work for the advertising agency that I used to work for, and I uncovered this file with his artwork in. At the time, I didn't realise who it was. Well, I wish I bloody kept it now. <laughs> yeah, cool. 
I do think that's a, a really fascinating way of um, lining them up. It'd be great to hear other ways of how people have got their loose run. If there's any other ingenious suggestions out there. Colours would be cool, wouldn't it? Colours. <laughs> people well, do bookcases. We could have this every month, Craig. You could change <laughs> your, your run. Yeah, because I've got nothing better to do. <laughs> you do them tall to short next next month. Okay. Well, it, it would be interesting to uh, to pass this on to the listeners and, and see if we can get some examples of different ways that people have arranged their loose runs. Definitely. This is madness. Let's move on to our, our main topic for the month. And something that's it comes around so often seems to have certainly reared its head again in recent times that is the uh, topic of reproduction so first first of all before we um, get into any of the things that we've got noted down tonight to discuss i just want to know from the outset from the start what is your stance on reproduction and I'll, I'll come to you firstly being the guest my stance on reproduction is that i am completely against it i think it's damaging to the hobby i think it's damaging to both established collectors and it's damaging especially to new collectors i think it's a false economy i don't see anything really altruistic about the production of these i think um, whilst it's very difficult to stop and maybe there is dialogue there for for harm reduction i do wish they were never produced it makes your life as a collector quite difficult fair point craig yeah, I mean, I'd echo that. I mean, I don't have any reproduction items in my collection personally, and it isn't something I would ever recommend or advocate to anybody. Okay, and Mark? We're going to have a very hard time tonight having a even discussion about this because I agree what everything with everything that's been said so far. I, I am against it. I'm going to try and approach the subject with a degree of keeping my vision a bit wider. But as far as I'm concerned, it's not something that I support. It's not something that I agree with. And I would actively speak out against it. So, uh, yeah, we're going to have a a right old time tonight. Yeah, because I'm very much in that camp as well. However, I would like us to discuss certain areas of it that maybe we can give a little bit of slack to. Now, with us all being anti-repro, it, it is going to be uh, difficult, but we will try to give this a balanced argument. Now, I'm pretty sure that many people saw the video that um, Michael French of Retro Blasting put mm. out. What I find in, in the community at the moment is you've got these, pe- these anti-repro people who are very harshly anti-repro. Any repro is bad and, and you, uh, people run these groups. You're, you're going to be bad. You're going to be bad. Then you've got someone like Michael French who is completely the other way, who restores ships. He will take off stickers off ships and put reproduction stickers in their place. So there's no middle ground between these two groups. Now, um, I believe we've all watched that, that video because the video was pretty damning towards people who are anti-repro and they're so far apart these two groups that i wonder tonight whether we could go through a few points that are made in the video and a few points that are often made in these groups rules about reproduction items and try to find a bit of middle ground now in that video there was two things which i thought was ridiculous first of all someone i don't i don't know who i mean retro blasting had created pseudo names for the people they were talking about from these groups I'm sure everybody who knows these groups could probably work them out. But someone had compared reproduction toy items to World War One, I, I think it was, which is the most absurd thing I've heard. And also there has been death threats made towards people who support reproduction items, which I just I just think that, that that's absolutely ludicrous from thing. And I'm sure we all agree on that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah um, so. 
at the end of the day, these are toys and <laughs> it's not a matter of life or death. And even more so in these in these times that we're going through at the moment. Let's get into the uh, the body of it. Lee, I'm going to come to you first. I think you kind of touched on it when you um, were just saying why you don't like reproduction items. Yeah. But can you just take us through what, what you believe and what you think the community who are against reproduction believe is the real issue when it comes to reproduction items? I think the issue that comes from my perspective on reproduction items is reproductions now are getting so good. They're getting so accurate that they can and will be passed off along the line as originals and they will defraud people. Now, one of the things that our friend at Retro Blasting said is that people who are against reproduction have some vested interest, some vested financial interest to protect their investment. And he created the straw man argument that we are somehow just protecting our own investment and this is it. And somehow that the repro community are completely altruistic and they're doing this for the love of the hobby. Well, let's 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 be fair here. Let's be fair. There are people who are anti-repro who are doing it for their own best interest, their own business interests. That is true. Of course they are, right? And on the other side of this, people who make reproductions are not doing this for the love of it. They're doing this to make money. And that's not in itself a bad thing. These people have got to make a living. But what they're doing is the easiest options to flood the market with reproduction items, items that have been engineered to closely mimic originals. So this isn't a case of that you have a, an Imperial Gunner blaster that looks the part, that looks really good from two feet away. This is one where it takes a skilled eye, a trained eye, to even tell that this is fake. And I've seen some incredible ones where I'm like, whoa, these are the new floating blasters? That's really good. That's really scarily good. And how easy would that be to drop them in? A new collector comes along who wants to collect the original stuff. And then suddenly they get landed on eBay with a bunch of reproduction weapons and it kills it dead for them. They feel the guilt over the fact, well, I've just wasted all this money. I don't have the, the knowledge to get into this. I haven't got the energy to learn the knowledge, which, you know, as a new collector, you do have that inertia and bang, they're out the hobby. And that for me is is the killer of this. You know, if people want to make cheap alternatives where you're a casual collector and you're happy with just something visual, then keep them made of resin. Don't go making them out of polyethylene, which float. That is my view on the reproduction weapon side. That doesn't even come into what's happening with the figures. I'm just happy that certain individuals are being sensible and marking the copyright markings as they are not like as they were on the original figures. I actually will applaud that. I will give credit where it's due. And I think the sensible and responsible option of people who are anti-repro is to promote that, is to is to encourage them actions. Because one of the things we don't want is this ending up into some escalated war that then damages everybody. Should they, you know, if they want the argument from, from the reproduction people is that there is room for both sides. Well, if that's the case, make sure there is. Mark, Craig, is there any other other things, issues that you come up with that Lee hasn't mentioned? Well, just, just to back him up on the point about um, new collection, Collectors. I had a, a friend contact me over Christmas. Uh, he's a guy I've known for years. He's not in the hobby at all. He's not a Star Wars collector. Uh, and he contacted me on behalf of his 11-year-old son 
who is getting into vintage Star Wars collecting, which is a story in itself. Um, and we'll, we're going to get young Seth on and we're going to chat to him a bit more about that. But his, his specific question to me was about how to avoid repros and, and how he can educate himself. And I thought it was really, you know, really interesting is that he didn't contact me and say, Craig, can you let me know who's making the best repros? Because I've got my son and he's, and he's starting to get into this and he's, he's collecting on a budget. You know, this, this lad wanted to know. He wanted to know that he was going to be spending his money that he'd saved on the real deal. Are there any arguments against those points? From the offset here, is there any any issues here with us that are saying, well, actually, this isn't um, bad as what we're making out? To me, it boils down to one thing, and that is money. There is the argument that new collectors or even old collectors who have been at this hobby for a long time or just come into it, and are looking at the prices of little tiny black guns fetching over £100. You have to question the sanity of it because it's very, very hard for somebody coming into this or somebody looking from the outside in and thinking, how on earth is a mass-produced tiny piece of plastic suddenly worth that amount of money? And we're talking over the past sort of several years, really, where prices for things have really skyrocketed to the degree that, like I say, the Sabre for a pop-up R2 is it's over £250 now, isn't it? It's, 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 it's an obscene amount of money. And you have to say, this is where the repro guys have got their claws into the argument, and this is where they are coming in at. They are providing a service to those who don't want to spend that kind of money on essentially a tiny, tiny piece of plastic. Whether it's original or not, they are providing you with the tools to put together a display that maybe you will be happy with and sit it on a shelf and think, yes, that's absolutely fine. I've not spent a ridiculous amount of money on these figures and um, I'm very happy and uh, my wallet is all the better for it. So I understand that argument But what you have to say is what Lee and Craig have said. It is very, very damaging to the hobby when the reproductions now are so close to the originals. These guys have really upped their game in the past sort of three or four years, I'd say. And we are now seeing stuff, figures even, that are absolute. And I've seen the yak faces, some of the last 15 and we all remember those um, sort of one-piece moulds that were really badly painted that were selling on eBay for, or trying to sell on eBay for sort of 30 or 40 pounds. They were dreadful. These, this next generation of reproduction figures, I'm not even talking about the weapons now, they are really quite good. It's damaging. There's no other word for it. So, uh, yeah, there is an argument. I, I understand where they're coming from, but... As a collector of vintage and as a a person who has a lot of passion for collecting and the wider community, I don't really see any good in it at all. I think from my perspective, what I would say to the people who make these repros is the the horse is bolted. The repros exist, the moulds exist, everything, these things exist. But will you at least show some responsibility if you are allowing there to be a broad church of collectors here, the ones who were the who, who, who were the more casual and the ones who were the hardcore? If you're allowing that, don't damage other people's collections. Have some responsibility and mark 
your stuff. Now, I'm happy that the individual who is behind the app faces has marked them with SLC. I'm happy with that. Okay, that's great. We should encourage that. As responsible collectors, we should encourage that. We shouldn't get this to the point where we push him against the wall and he and he just goes for broke to, and just and just sets the world on fire with this. I think we need to encourage them to be more responsible with these things. Okay, to mark them up. Now, my biggest problem isn't so much the figures, but the weapons. It's the weapons, and this has been driven by the rise in prices. So maybe we also have to take some responsibility for this too. But the weapons that have been engineered to look so unbelievably close to the originals, that's where my main problem stands. Okay. Okay. So a nice starting point there. So right. Before we move on too much, now Craig, you've been around the collecting scene for a long for a long period now. And in fact, I think all three of you have been. I think you can all go back to the nineties to find you boys collecting. Yeah. So but Craig, is it true that the stance against reproduction items I mean reproduction items have always been around, okay? Since the nineties, they have existed. But is it true that it's more of a recent campaign that it's so pushed now that it's um, reproduction items are bad in the 90s? Weren't they conceived as just another option for the collector? I remember coming across a flyer um, and this would have been early 90s, I think. So it was a, it was a black and white flyer. It was advertising replacement weapons. Okay, and I have some recollection that it, there was a connection with Nottingham, um, so it might have been a Nottingham mail away address or something. But that that sort of rings a bell. And this was a, at a point where I'd brought all my original uh, figures down from the loft at my parents, and you know, clearly I was missing some some guns. And this seemed like a really good solution. You know, there was this this flyer advertising these these weapons. I admit the appeal was was partly the price. I mean, they were like a quid each or whatever. I can't, I can't remember, but they were they were very affordable. Um, but also that option of completing everything in one go i could go i'll have two of them one of those and uh and i remember you know filling this thing in and I, I think at the time i didn't even consider the question of them being reproductions or whether they'd just been you know leftovers from from the factories or any of that any of that but they 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 arrived and they were terrible i mean they were just absolute piles of poop they'd clearly been um you know done cottage industry style lot of uh, flashing around the edges and they were they were bare, some of the smaller ones were barely recognizable as 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 guns you know i chalked that up as a as a lesson learned i mean i i, I replaced them over time I, I don't really remember ever maybe trying to tidy them up and using them on on displays but you know even then even back then they just didn't sit with me they weren't legit they weren't part of what i was into and i think what's what's happened in those intervening years is that that knowledge just across the board has been filled in and has been documented and you know even things back then you know a blaster was a blaster was a blaster the the idea of having these different shades of blue and black and, and all that kind of stuff was was still some years away so i think all of that has has, has grown together so our knowledge of uh, of, of how these things were all intended originally what went with what figure and then this idea of these repros getting sort of more and more sophisticated that's where it's sort of uh, as the guys have said you know that's where it's sort of coming unstuck and that's why we're all getting a little bit antsy about it because it's it, they were very noticeable yeah yeah you make a very good point actually that education and research and stuff and it's, it's definitely more in the forefront of people mark lee do you remember anything different in the 90s i, I remember the guns being made from lead you know like lead soldiers because that was the thing that was easily achievable which it, it, it's strange really because 
back in the late 80s, early 90s, you could still pick the weapons up. There, there was loads out there. You know, we're not talking about stupid amounts of money for stuff. You were picking collections up, car boot sales and, and, and what have you. You were still collecting, you still seeing figures, carded figures in shops at that point. They were still readily available. The stuff was out there. Nobody was buying it. There was a very small group of people that were collecting it. It isn't like it is now where we've got like, you know, a huge following for this stuff and prices are through the roof. It was never like that. So it always sort of left me puzzled that anybody would want to go to the trouble of making a really poor reproduction. And I remember seeing it and having it in hand, uh, like a, a, a white metal sort of lead Dengar rifle. I think, well, what's the point of that? I mean, the effort involved in producing a really naff version of a Dengar rifle and then selling it for less than what you could get an original for, is more or less the same sort of money. It's crazy. I've never really understood the uh, the motivation behind reproduction at that time. Now it's a different kettle of fish. There's big money to be made from decent weapons. So um, back then it was a bit of a head scratcher. My memories of reproduction weapons was they, they were of such poor quality back then that they almost felt like they were made in someone's garage and uh, it was more of a cottage industry than the kind of industrial scale that we see now that's been farmed out into Far East vendors. I didn't like them. I wasn't into them. Again, as Mark says, weapons and figures were out there. You have to remember Kenner and their affiliates produced more than 200 million action figures in their, in their time. When we really talk about this, loose figures and their weapons, in reality, are not that rare. They're really not. Last 15, last 17, they're not rare. They're just, they're in demand. And, and part of the problem is as well, is that people want them now. People want them yesterday. They want to put a loose run together in three months. So they're going to pay through the nose and they'll drive those prices up. We've all seen them with the last 15 figures. Now, with a bit of patience and a bit of work and a bit of tenacity, you can put together a loose run with original weapons and you can put it together in a reasonable amount of time and for a reasonable amount of money. Or you can take all this money you've got and dump it into reproduction. And it's a false economy to me. I think if you want to spend the time rather than the money, then... You know, you go along the original route, which is what my view was back then. I've seen these reproductions and they were very poor, very poor. As Mark said, they were made, some of them were made of lead. They were made of resin. So they, they were full of air bubbles. Some of, I remember having a Stormtrooper blaster for the 12-inch Stormtrooper and it was made of black resin. And you actually could see air bubbles in the plastic. I actually broke the thing in half and it was like an aero. The thing inside was like an aero chocolate bar. And for me, I was just like, I don't want this. I, I want an original, you know, so I'll hold out for an original. And I did eventually. And I think that was my view of it. I had a, So I suppose the cliff notes is I had a fairly dim view of reproductions then. And I was like, this is a, this is a distraction. You know, I want original items. So, you know, I'm collecting original items. If it's just about the loot, then I'll just buy a book with it all in. See, that, that's that's where the, the argument's going to lay, isn't it? Because yeah. I suppose us for don't give that balanced argument because we're probably all a little bit more invested than a, um, let's say, um, Ned. Okay, we've got a bloke called Ned. He's got three children at home and works two jobs a week. Okay, all his money goes into the family to feed the family. But he has a 20 quid to himself each week. He's not a drinker. And Star Wars gives him a time back to a bit of nostalgia. Okay, yeah. he hasn't got a hundred pound to go and spend on a blaster. So why shouldn't he be able to pick up 
dirt cheap beaters and just accommodate them with a £5 repro cape or a £5 repro blaster just to make it look to him like it was as a child. He's not an invested collector. He just wants uh, a throwback to when he was a child. And you've just said an argument, which I hear a lot, Lee. Don't have it if you can't afford it. Have a book. Uh, that was just for me. That argument is is strictly how I perceived it. Now, I'm not going to turn around and say to this guy, you know, I've been in that same situation in the past. I'm not going to turn around and say to this guy, you can't have these things because you're not as invested in it as I am. But what I will say is that there is absolutely no need for him to have such perfect reproductions particularly in the weapons, perfect reproductions, that when he eventually grows bored of it and decides to sell up, he'll throw it all on eBay. He won't mention, possibly, that these are reproduction weapons. And then suddenly, bang, they're into, they're into some, you know, someone's gone and bought them. They've just paid top dollar for this and half the weapons are reproduction. Or as we've mentioned before, some new collector, some young lad, some young girl comes in. They want to collect it, but they want the original stuff. They think they come upon a deal, bang, they've got a bunch of repro stuff. They've wasted their money. So whilst I understand the position of your mate Ned, that he wants a bit of nostalgia, he wants a, a bit of that time, and I totally agree and totally support his position on that. We've also got to think about as well how this is going to pan out down the line when that stuff gets liquidated, because it's always new collectors who come on stock. It's not people like us, right? I mean, we've all got at least 20 years in the hobby each. It's not people like us who come on stock. It's young kids who are entering the hobby who want to be part of this and want the original stock. They've already got through the thing, well, if I'm going to spend money on this, I'm going, I want to spend money on the original stuff, not reproductions. You, you, you see Ned, and it goes back to what Liz Ned is your target market for your repro makers. You, you, your repro guys, especially the ones now, these are the guys that, they want to sell to. This is their market. It's not your older collectors, the guys that are time served. It's the guys that are looking to do something very quickly, very cheaply. That is their market. And what you will find is when somebody's got the collecting bug, ultimately there can be no satisfaction in owning a reproduction item. You will never look at a pop-up R2 that's got a repro label and a repro saber and think, wow, that is fantastic. That is that will bug you. It will irritate you. And ultimately, you will find yourself getting rid of it because it has no value. What you've just spent on a reproduction item, you will never get that money back. Whereas if you invest it in a, an original piece, and it might be a beta, it might be chewed, it might not have the saber with it or, or, or whatever, but you will get your money back at least and this is this goes back to what's been said before about there being a false economy. You are wasting money. And this will come up time and time again tonight. And which is why the argument between the, the, the four of us sat down here is we're going to be hammering home this same point all night. Is there can be no good thing to come from funding the reproduction guys and their sort of enterprises because 
Nobody, nobody really wins. The only guys that win, the people who are making the things and the people that are making the money out of it at the first point. And these are the reproduction makers. So, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a, something that's going to crop up several times tonight, I'm sure. I think as well, all the highly paid consultants who work for Hasbro recognise Ned. And that's where the retro collection has come from. Exactly. Exactly. I think to pick up on Craig's point here, this is this is something which at one time I would have been very anti what Hasbro have done with the retro collection. I was, you know, I, I was like, why are they doing this? It's lazy. Why are they doing this? Well, you know what? Since it's come out, I think they're great. I really do. I think they're great. You know, Ned can go down to Tesco's, right? You can see them on the shelf at, at a tenner a pop. They look the part. They look the part. They're carded. They look the part. They look great. And he can pick them up. He doesn't need to go trawling through eBay for them. He can pick them up. The market's there for him. Hasbro have identified that. They've been responsible with the weapons. They've been responsible with the figures. They've been responsible with the card backs. So for 20 quid, Ned is getting his vintage fix and he's getting two figures in the bargain. Great stuff. He'll never lose any money out of those as well. You know, he'll always get his money back. Absolutely. What's great about them is that, and I I love this about them actually, is that kids are starting to collect them. Kids are starting to collect them and and it's, it's almost becoming their version of vintage now. Now, some of those kids will come into our sector. Great, you know. Some of them will stay where they are. But from my perspective, what Hasbro have done is, is they've played a blinder. They really have. And they've been responsible about it. Why I ask is that the repro makers are responsible about it. Some things they've made a start on, but they need to they need to up the game a little bit with this. Let's not be enemies. Let's not be enemies. Let's not turn this into a war in inverted commas. Let's put an end to this. Lee, just jumping ahead of something that we were going to bring up, you've brought the retro collection up here. Yeah. How different are the weapons? I mean, are these, do these look the same or are they significantly, noticeably different in hand? I think they're very different. I think, I think the, I've not seen them in hand to do float tests with them or anything like that. Or, But from what I can see, and I've, and I've looked at some pretty detailed photographs of them and I've seen them in hand as well. They look the part. They look great. If you're a casual collector who wants the look of them, wants a nice kind of retro shelf in your front room or a Daltoff, they look great. They really do. But to people who are time served in the hobby, time served in vintage, you know, it's not going to fool anybody. You know, they're not engineered to fool anybody. And that's the point. They're engineered to give you that them warm and fuzzies of nostalgia. That leads me on to a natural question, okay? Something you've said earlier, okay? A new collector coming into the hobby, okay? Could be a youngster, like you said earlier. What's the difference between them buying a job lot, which has got reproduction weapons because they're inexperienced not being able to tell, and someone who has got a load of vintage figures and has paired them with the retro line weapons, which also look the real deal. They're surely, they're surely going to be fooled by both if they've not got that experience. Yeah, but the way I look at this, this comes down to economy. You know, how many, how many pack, how many carded retro figures have you got to open to dump all those weapons in with a bunch of loose beaters? Whereas you can go to a reproduction manufacturer and you can pick up those 98% accurate weapons for a quid a piece. 
Then take the original Leia figure, for example. That was released in the first wave of the retro collection. Yeah. Uh, that figure's 80 to 100 pounds now loose. Yeah. I mean, the gun is a, a massive part of that price. Yeah. yeah. So a 10 pound to top up your, your figure, which you can then drop into a job lot on eBay. I mean, the thing is, the Leia one's an interesting because the front end of the Leia gun is completely different to the front end that you would see on, a, on an original. But I could fall a complete newbie. It could do. It could do, yeah. And again, this is these are the problems. But let's cut to the chase. We can't uninvent these things. No. Right? As it stands right now, we've lost that. We've we've lost that argument. We can't uninvent them. There's so many of them out there already that if they were to stop now, we would still have the problem. So what I'm arguing for is let's cool our jets. Let's cool our jets and let's open the dialogue where we're not insulting each other. I watched the retro blasting video and I just I was I was there with my head in my hands because it was 50% of it was just insulting people. And I'm like, you want the dialogue, then you need to cool your jets, man. And it's the same with the anti-repro. Well, I've got friends, wonderful people I know who are so burnt up about this that I want to say to them with love, cool your jets, guys. Let's have the discussion. Let's be able to try and salvage something out of this because the last thing we want is for out of spite people are going to try and destroy the hobby that we have this isn't just about looking after investments yeah sure great everyone wants to be able to not lose money on what what they've done but it goes beyond that you get to a point as a collector and i'm sure you craig mark stewart you can agree perhaps maybe with this you go beyond being a collector and you almost become its caretaker <laughs> for some, you know, for, for pop cultural history, for pop culture. This stuff is like disappearing. This stuff is going into landfills, you know, and you end up feeling like, well, I'm not interested in the value because I'm not going to sell it. I'm only going to sell it when I'm an old man. You know, I love this hobby. I love this game. Right. I love the people that I work with in this. So what this is more for me is, the integrity of my collection, rather than the value. The repro guys say, oh, it's all about the value. No, it isn't. It really isn't. It's about the integrity of what we've got, you know? It's the thrill of the hunt. It's the integrity of the fact that we've got, we've got like toys that are 40 years old that have like, that have somehow survived in mint condition. That's great. That's awesome. And that to me is the value of this. And and what I ask is that we're, we're allowed to have that. We're allowed to have that too, you know? If you want the repro, Ned wants his repro, I'd say go to the retro collection, ideally. But we've got to reach to a point now because this is going to go on for the next five, ten years of us just going over and over and over the same point with them. Got to be some damage limitation. I mean, I, th- I think Ned's already on the verge of being put off. <laughs> He's, he doesn't know where to stand at the moment. I've just sold him some stuff. <laughs> I bet you have, yeah. <laughs> Um, Mark, I'm going to come over to you now. Uh, this has already been mentioned a few times. I think Lee's already alluded to it as well. So do you think reproduction items would be more accepted if they were clearly marked? Now, I do see on online, I'll make them bright colours. I think I think um, Rich, when I used to work on the Vintage Rebellion, he was always going, oh, if it was bright green or something, which I don't really think is an argument, because if you want a loose run, you want them to look a little bit correct. Because it it you, defeats the object, doesn't it? Yeah, it does completely defeat the object. I mean, you still want them to look like the thing. If they were maybe maybe slightly different in the markings and then, and then there is an R or the maker's marking on these things, do you think the community would then say, hey, do you know what? You are marking them. Bring them in. That is a very tough one. I would 
certainly think that the hardliners would just remain hardline. I think for a lot of people, there's no grey area with this. You're either with them or against them. And that means you're either a supporter of Repo or you're not. You're against it 100%. Like I say, there's no grey area. I think there is a degree of grey area with it. I feel that there are certain things that Repro guys could be doing which would certainly get them a lot of brownie points. And I think Lee alluded to a few of them earlier on. And one of the things that I think where Repro would certainly get a lot of brownie points is things like cardboard inserts for boxes, which nine times out of ten, they're always missing. If these were done with clear markings and done in a different grade of cardboard or different colour, it would still give the box its shape. It would, you know, a lot of people, when they collect boxed items, they put them on top of one another and certain boxes are more fragile than others. Having the inserts inside creates rigidity, so it makes the boxes sturdier, makes them last longer, keeps everything, you know, nice and tidy inside the box rather than loose and jangling around. It's, it's very difficult to display some sometimes. So stuff like that, I can totally see where a reproduction item, clearly marked, clearly coloured, or, you know, differential from an original, there is there would be a market for that. Like I say, there is degrees of grey area, but I, I, I just, I just can't see a lot of the guys expect, expecting, you know, them to be welcomed with open arms. You just can't see it. I think it'll take time, uh, and there are some people that we know that will that will never accept it. But I think right now, what we've got to consider is damage limitation, and not alienate people to such an extreme extent where we end up shooting ourselves in the foot. I think where we are at the moment with a lot of the groups taking an anti-repro stance and they are educating as best they can. There's websites out there like Imperial Gunnery and there are certain individuals out there on uh, Facebook groups who are putting a lot of time and effort into educating and identification and you know these people really need you know applauding for the time and effort they're putting in because they're not getting paid for this absolutely these people are giving their time and expertise freely there's there's no excuse none whatsoever to educate yourself on what's a repro and what isn't it's out there the information is out there and the people are out there if you need to ask the questions I, i feel where we are at the moment with a lot of groups i think they're getting it right. I think they are engaging with collectors, specifically new collectors who are asking these questions. They're engaging with them properly. They're answering the questions. They're tagging them in the right direction, giving them links to the right websites to educate themselves. I, I think as long as you maintain that and you're not just completely whitewashing it and putting it to one side, pretending as though as though it doesn't exist, you know, the second you mention repro on certain websites or certain Facebook groups, that's it, you're out. And in in my mind, these people need to be communicated with rather than just simply banned. I agree. Okay, it's going to come on in a minute to a similar sort of question to that, Mark. So I'll get you to elaborate in a minute. You, you've just brought up brought up the um, the groups. The Facebook groups in particular, especially in this video, are accused of being, uh, I think the words elitist and draconian in their views, both mentioned when it comes to repro and the way it treats people 
who own or support repro items. They name a few groups actually allowed. We know you, you've said the Imperial Gunnery. I think the Imperial Gunnery, when they when they accuse people of it all being for monetary reasons, the Imperial Gunnery have been putting together that guide for, well, well over a decade, way before money was an issue in the hobby. And they call out the two biggest UK selling groups and they call out two of the biggest American selling groups. Just out of interest, Craig or anybody here, does anyone know kind of what the rules state in these groups? Is it all very similar? Um, they, their stance is similar, but the way they say it differs. And that's noticeable between the the American groups and the uh, the British groups. I mean, that video that we sort of kicked started this conversation with, it's... You know, it's less of a, a reasoned argument between the pros and cons of repro. It's more of a just a, a takedown of of individuals and where this guy's found hypocrisy and and it's about people. You know, I thought it was very interesting just to look at the rules because they do they all take a uh, a similar stance on 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 repro and we've touched on the attitudes of the hardliners and I think that's where you know that's why we're discussing this because it's so inflammatory and it's makes such drama but the way that they say the way they state these rules is, is very interesting so i'm just gonna read a read a couple out so i've got best bin prime here and this is their group rules from their admin and their first rule is help each other out which i think is great and their second rule is be cool um their third rule is we are a community first and it's not until 0.5 out of 10 that they mention repros so their headline for that is customs are cool repro is not customs are cool reproduction is not simply put in sell customs but not repro and don't promote repro in our group please so they're making the distinction of between customs and repro which i think is important and they're being polite about it that's that's not you know you're raping my children and it's all uh, hyperbole and and the hard line that we um you know that we were expecting from this you know if we took this video at face value if you look at uh, the imperial commissary they're a little bit straighter um i mean I, in my day job i advise brands on tone of voice a lot and uh, this is this is what this is all about you can have these stances but the way you sort of start the conversations is important so the imperial commissary is is, is very similar any repro postings will be deleted i mean that's that's quite a hard line but it's not you know it's not particularly rude it's just being factual but then when you go to echo base i just you know i think echo base are great you know they've got a, a great ecosystem going you know they've got lots of strands it's all presented very well but their group rules as it's as it's stated here i'm just going to read a few bits out and just just see what you think to the this this tone of voice no fishing posts it's either for sale or it's not exclamation mark exclamation mark no shit posting keep your pictures of death star barbecues star destroyer shaped clouds and other tat for your own page exclamation mark don't be a dick speaks for itself really and their last point is no hate speech or bullying make sure everyone feels safe bullying of any kind isn't allowed and it's just i don't know that's that rankles me it's coming at me with a slightly aggressive tone as a collector so i look at this video that mr whatever his name is mr retroplasting has created and you sort of he's reacting to that tone isn't he? he's reacting to that attitude and these talk of death threats and this like i say hyperbole over repro so i, I think you know we all share the same view, I think, but how you approach it is important. And there's, there's some nuance there that, that needs to be appreciated. Yeah. So back to what, uh, you know, what Lee's saying about cooling your jets. That, I, I find that as a set of rules, it's neither straightforward or friendly. It's just a little bit antagonistic. Mark, you, you kind of just answered some of this in your last point, but I will read my whole question again, as I put it to you. 
just in case there's anything that triggers anything different in your response, okay? So in the retro blasting video, Michael calls out the groups for their hardline stance on Repro. Craig's just named them. I think Bespin Prime, Imperial Commissary, Echo Base. I think Jabbers is also mentioned. And Imperial Gunnery is mentioned for... I think it's more about the person that was was associated with the page. And I think there was a couple of other smaller ones. But these are the main ones that they attacked. What he's saying is he's called them out for their hardline stance on Repro. If people discuss or try and sell Repro, they are automatically banned. He accuses certain groups of trying to dictate the hobby with these actions. I don't agree with those views, first of all. When people put time and effort, it's, it's the same as us doing a podcast here. If you're putting time and effort into something, we don't do anything for financial gain. We do it because of a love for the hobby. If they are our set of rules, so Echo Base, yes, they might be a, a very harsh line, but that is their set of rules. That is their group. They are the people that spend their time, put their time and effort yep. into that group. So if that is what their rules are, that is what their rules are. You abide by them or you don't be part of that group. I get that, okay? However, there is an argument that these groups, rather than banning instantly, use their platform to educate, educate against the reproduction. I think you've already said that, Mark, and alluded to that, and perhaps include some tolerance in people having them in their collections. I mean, for example, like Ned, perhaps he would maybe be on the ban list for owning these in his loose run. They don't need to allow sales, we get that, and scammers, of course, should be banned. But is it time to find a happy medium where these items can be accepted to a certain level and controlled within the group rather than sending these people away to somewhere else where they just breed in that area of the hobby? Is that is that saying, isn't it, about keeping your enemies close? Because... They might not be your enemy, but you know what I mean with reproduction weapons. Is it better to have them in your group where you can help educate them and help guide them, but give them a little bit of tolerance rather than pushing it away and then buying, buying, buying and selling that stuff on eBay and then causing a wider problem? I think that is already the case with a lot of groups. I understand that when somebody posts a post up on, on, on one of the Facebook groups and, and there's repro in there, you will always get the odd moron that is just absolutely, you can't have repro, blah, 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 and, and it becomes a slangy match it's embarrassing to see grown people become children uh, uh, over what could ultimately be an innocent post this person doesn't quite understand the level of hatred that a lot of people have towards it so it, it is a bit of a lion's den sometimes but and this this is the big but and i, I want to make this point because i think this is important there's no skill or talent to start in a facebook group at all. Anybody can do it. You just tap it in, create a new Facebook group, call it whatever. Uh, this is what we stand for. Off you go. Invite your friends. And from there, it evolves. But what they are, and this is like some of the bigger groups and some of the more successful groups, is they are people's time. They are people's energy and expertise and goodwill that is freely given. Nobody uh, on these admin pages, uh, no, none of these admin are paid for what they do. And let me tell you something from experience. When you are answering questions from people day in, day out, what's this worth? Have you got this? I want to buy that. Do you want to buy this? Where can I get these from? When you get a dozen of those messages every single day, your tone can ultimately come across quite aggressive. And I understand that. I really do. Don't get me wrong. There are some admin out there that are on a complete ego trip. From experience, a majority of the guys that I know that admin these Facebook groups are good guys. Their heart is in the right place. 
they are very passionate and very willing to help people. If the question is asked, they will help 9.9%, uh, 99% of the time. You might catch one on a bad day every now and again. That's understandable. We all have them. Believe you me, there are morons in all walks of life. But I think, and this goes back to your, your, your question, Stu, is I think the a lot of the groups have got it right. The information that is being garnered at the moment by some of the guys out there, and I, I, I can't, I'm not going to rattle off names because ultimately I will forget somebody, but the Jabbers, Echoes, these guys are doing good work when it comes to reproduction and identifying and educating. And this is the key word with what we're talking about at the moment, education, understanding what the downfall, what the pitfalls are involved with dealing in repro, buying repro. How best am I able to get out there and collect properly? I, I honestly believe that a lot of the Facebooks have got it right. Yes, more can be done. But, you know, it's a learning curve. Everybody's in this, you know, reproduction is getting better. The guys doing the hard work on the front line, they are, you know, finding better ways to put together this information and put it out there so that we can all benefit from it. There's no reason whatsoever. If you want to get into collecting, there's no reason whatsoever for you to educate yourself just a little tiny bit before you jump in with two feet and start posting up on established groups with established guys and start, you know, coming across like the great I am. It's just not going to work. Take a bit of time, do a bit of research and go from there. There's no such thing as a stupid question if you don't know the answer. I think the, me the mechanics of the groups make it easy as well, don't they? So I'm a, a member of the Echo database and there's not a day goes by where there's you know, something I don't scroll past that somebody you know, flagging something or making a query. And I'm you know, rather than like, seeking it out, I'm taking that in by osmosis all the time. But what about Ned? He's put together the first 12 and eight of them have got reproduction weapons. OK, and he's come on and he's mentioned it. Now, these groups might say, hey, you, you can't do that. You know, that's not the right idea. Well, they're not banning him. But then he... He disappears a bit. He takes a back seat rather than showing his display and getting education, education, education. He decides to not post a photo of his collection. Is it time to say, OK, you've got him in your collection, but um, here's what you can do. Here's a better option. Here's this, here's that, rather than just making them feel uncomfortable. I would love to know. I mean, Echo Base, I'm, we're going that because that is the biggest of the UK groups, OK? Echo Base, I don't know how many members it's got, but I wonder how many members there have at least one item in their collection that is reproduction. And I bet you it's a lot higher than what a lot of them will admit. I, I, I would totally agree with you. And a, a lot of that is knowing that it's reproduction or not knowing that it's reproduction. I bet there's guys out there who think they know it's real or think they think it's real. And actually, <laughs> lo and behold, it isn't. I have one piece of reproduction in my office where I sit and I know it's reproduction and it annoys me, but I also know how difficult that piece is going to be for me to find. And I am on the lookout for it, but the chance of it coming up loose is going to be really slim and I purely have it to keep a box in shape. Okay. Cool. That's what the, is it? it? It's an inlay for one of the blasters. Okay. Oh, right. But, okay. but the yeah. box is, isn't a cheap box. It doesn't come up very often. And the inlay came with it. The person said to me, like, I'm not selling this with the box, but I will put it in because it keeps the shape of the box. And I've kept it in there for that reason. Okay. So, I mean, do, I'm going to ask you three. Okay. I've just been totally honest there. 
any of you got any reproduction that you're aware of in your collections? The only thing I've got that's reproduction is I bought the Mark Poon Palatoy Stormtrooper card because this was at a time when these were coming out and I wanted to know how good they were in hand. So I did actually figure, right, okay, I need to get one to see how good they are and to see if I've got anything to worry about. It turned out that I got I got got hold of it and I saw I saw the quality of it and again it's uh, it, it looks the part and it looks the part for people who want a casual piece digital printing it, the the bubble is taped down it's the reproduction figure that's inside so I've got a little sort of fun shelf in my front room I don't keep my collection in my front room just a little fun shelf of just random things. All sorts of things like sort of a, there's a there's a toy biz RoboCop on there, you know. So it's just a bit of kind of pop culture stuff, and I just have that just there, just as um just as a you know just a just something just a glance at. But I wouldn't actually say it's part of my collection, you know. It's just a something I have as a, as a display, and the only reason I bought it was to see how close he had got to doing perfect reproductions, which in this case he didn't. I never think Poon is frowned upon. Quite as much as other um, reproduction people no. in the community. No. There's there is there is a, a, a bit of a different backstory there, isn't there? Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, he, he wasn't mega popular on Rebel Scum. I will tell you now for what he, for what happened. But the culture was different, and the the view was was perhaps a little bit a little bit more nuanced than it is now. So you know, if you looked at his Rocket Rocket Boba Fett, the majority of the repro Rocket Boba Fetts are out there come from the Mark Poon stable of reproductions, and. I can guarantee coming back to when we were talking about people on popular Facebook groups having at least one reproduction item in their in their collection. Well, perhaps I could posit that they would maybe have a Mark Poon Rocket Fett in there or the Mark Poon Kitbashed Boba Fett is in there. You know, so from that perspective, yeah, I mean, you might find some odd bits like this. And Mark Poon perhaps is a subtly different history with the hobby than perhaps some of the more contemporary repro producers. Interesting. I'm ending all of this. The tree, the text, the Jedi. I'm going to burn it down. Now, Craig, I'm going to return to something that we covered in an early edition of Those Old Fossils. And that was the, um, I'm sure we'll all remember it, the, the Kim Simmons book, which was placed on Kickstarter. And it was coming along nicely, getting backed. And then it got backed by the Fan Stripe Back, a site which is run by Chris Smith, a known customizer and reproduction producer. And uh, we're going to get on to him a bit later because, again, Retro Blasting defends him quite stoutly on there. But there was an outcry from the community. The, these same groups, again, put a lot of pressure on Kickstarter. Kim and Kim eventually rejected the money to make sure the community stayed on site. Of course, they are his market. You know, I, I, I get Kim's decision. He doesn't want to upset 2,000 people who potentially could back his book. Now, I'm not totally sure, but if memory served, the donation was around 3K. And of course, that is a substantial backing on any Kickstarter plan. And yes, the fans strike back would have been named in the book as a supporter. But would a name in a book really create a host of people to buy reproduction items? Whereas losing a donation of that size to someone like Kim and his project, that could have seen him fail to cross the line and risk losing a project that the community would potentially love. So in hindsight, looking back at that debacle, do you think the community acted in the correct spirit? And do you feel Kim made the right decision and backed down and rejected it, especially when he's not in either camp He's when it comes to reproduction? I, I don't think he gives 
two hoots about it. I mean, he's not not a collector. He doesn't use repro weapons as far as I'm aware in his images, and uh, he doesn't publicly back against reproduction. Uh, what are your thoughts now in hindsight? I mean, we all were like, he shouldn't be doing this at the time. Yeah, it was back on show 12, if anybody wants to go and check that one out. We did discuss it at some length. In hindsight, I mean, there is part of me that looks at this situation, and it's a bit like they're bullying an old man who looks like my dad. You know, I, I don't think, like you say, re- the issue of repros would have sat very high on his agenda at all. He was doing his thing, making his money, making his books. And I think, you know, that there are a lot of characters around him that I think this sits with uh, more. They were helping him run the Kickstarter, who were more of his uh, his voice in the um, in the situation. Do I, do I think the community acted in the right spirit? I mean, we've established it's a very vocal community, one that uh, does gravitate towards uh, drama, and uh, it's a very emotive topic, clearly. And this was, in the community, a really nice, convenient, high-profile platform for them to raise their concerns. So they absolutely did that. I understand that. I, I think, you know, some of the debate around it as always with these things it's that it's the language and the attitude that i find over the top it's not their stance on fakes in the market so i i do understand it i think it could have been perhaps been a bit more gracious in its approach but it it, it was what it was do i think he made the right decision i mean ultimately it didn't affect the publishing of the book did it it still came out he still found the money if i was him to have got the uh, to make this go away to make the noise go away i probably would have done the same thing Uh, especially when i knew that you know down the line i wanted to milk the legacy a bit more and bring volume three out which he's just launched so mark and lee are you in the same camp as craig on that i think it's a very i think it's a very tough one essentially kim simmons isn't invested either way in this he really isn't. He's, you know, he's not a collector. He's a guy who worked on the line 30, 40 years ago. And I actually do understand the anti-repro line against this of dissuading him from accepting this, right? Because as it stands at the moment, fans strike back, etc., are causing lots of problems. So there is no platform for them. I mean, one of the things I, I do I do agree with is is that you should have the right in your Facebook groups to say whether or not Repro is allowed to be promoted. And I know from my Facebook groups that I'm in, it's not. And you should, you like Mark has said, you put the time and the effort unpaid into this. You should have the right to, to say your own rules and that we there's no platform for reproduction. Could this ever be something that is redressed and, and considered? Well, a lot, de- a lot of that depends upon the actions of the people who make the reproductions. And it also then depends on the individual decisions of those communities and of those Facebook communities. And I think what happened with the Kim Simmons thing, that is really just an extension of this. It was a deplatforming of fans strike back because the reason they gave £3,000 away, and no one gives £3,000 away for nothing, was to open up a new market. And I think I think you have the right to turn around and say no, particularly if the people around Kim Simmons who are helping him with this with this project, who are partners of this project, if they are partners of this project, you know, if they have a say in this, then if that's what they say, then shouldn't their uh, decision stand? Okay, let let me put this to you then. Okay, one of your reasons earlier for not supporting repros is every time you give them a bit of money, it goes back into the system for creating better reproductions. Okay, 
So how about that he takes 3K that he's possibly earned from these reproductions and he's putting it into a project which will benefit the community and that 3K isn't going into making better reproductions? Yeah, but we know we know for a fact that he that no one dumps 3K into anything, Stuart, without seeing a return. He would, he would, he would always, he would always put whatever money back in. You know that that three grand would probably, you know, he would spend it on another way to advertise his 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 product. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, the way that I look at it is, if it were my book. Would I want this guy's money? And the answer is an emphatic no, I wouldn't, because I don't want to benefit from reproduction in that way. And I certainly wouldn't want to think that people who are going to buy my book are going to see me as benefiting from reproduction. And I know what we've said, Kim hasn't got a vested interest in reproduction one way or another. He doesn't care. Ultimately, it's his decision. It's his book. It's his decision. He decided to turn the donation, refund the donation, and that's completely up to him. I personally think it's the right decision. And if it were my book, I'd do exactly the same. Yeah, like Craig just said, it, it, thankfully it didn't affect the uh, the outcome of it. In fact, I should think after he turned it down, I would imagine some of the community pulled forces and maybe donated when they wouldn't have done because he did do the right thing. So, and now we're, we're seeing more come out. So, in the long, in hindsight, it was a good, it was a good thing, but it could have, could have been a defining factor, which, which didn't um, see it cross the line. But yeah, that's fair enough. Now, Lee. We also saw the community round on fan for tracks recently when they posted an interview with Chris Smith, the man behind the fan struck back. Now, fan for tracks is a Star Wars site reports on all aspects of Star Wars. But again, certain areas of the community turned on fan for tracks and eventually Mark Newbold had to post a groveling apology in these groups stating that he didn't realise the upset it would cause. And they then removed the article. Fan for tracks were then attacked by the masses from uh, the repro supporting side. Basically, the opposite reasons for the anti repro side saying, you know, you're a Star Wars site. You're meant to cover all all bases. So, do you think this was fair to put fan for tracks on the spot like that when they are purely reporting on the whole of the hobby, not just toys, everything from movies to slippers to you, you know anything at all? Weren't they just covering the hobby and doing what they are meant to do? Journalists in all walks of life are lobbied by special interest groups, okay? We see it in politics, we see it in mainstream journalism. They're always lobbied by special interest groups. The editorial decisions that they make are theirs and theirs alone. If Mark Newbold decided to remove that content, then that is his decision and his decision alone as an editorial decision. He chose to listen it's up to him whether or not he listens to any of those special interest lobby groups. And that is basically what my view of this is. So whether or not he had, he did the right thing to remove it or he should have kept it up. That's entirely his decision as the editor. I do. I do find that that was a a different uh, scenario to something like the Kim Simmons book. Yeah. I I did think to myself, well, I didn't read the article. It was taken down before I'd had a chance to read it. So I don't know whether it was praising what, the fan strike back produce or whatnot i'm i'm not sure what was in the actual article at the end of the day at the end of the day that edit- editorial decision
position is Mark Newbold's. It's no one else's. And it can be lobbied by anybody. He was in a no-win situation, wasn't he? He got lobbied by the anti-repro. Take it down. The other side have a pop. And you're just like, well, so, you know. So both sides have to respect that editorial decision. I'm going to come over to you, Mark. Now, I know we've already had uh, Lee's opinion on this, but one accusation made from from the video and from the repro-loving side is that the people that are heavily pushing the anti-repro stance are heavily indebted in the hobbyist traders. We know that he was pinpointing to someone linked with the Imperial Gunnery, someone that was linked with the Imperial Commissary, in particular on, on this accusation. By forcing out reproductions, it keeps the, keeps the prices of the originals extremely high. So as traders, they're getting what they want. Although one of the sellers he's accusing of which i just mentioned a minute ago did a lot of the legwork on the imperial gunnery way before uh, these prices rocketed do you think there is any truth in these accusations i i, I don't think so I, I think when you make comments like that i think you do yourself a disservice and i think you end up shooting yourself in the foot there would have to be a lot of time and energy and money involved in a group of traders coming together to organise what effectively would be a cartel to almost like the the diamond industry, basically keeping the prices uh, artificially high for something really and truthfully would be very, very hard to control. I mean, this stuff exists in vast numbers outside of, you know, uh, there's thousands of the hundreds of thousands of these items in all places you know there isn't like a you know a magical mine where this stuff is coming out of this stuff is everywhere and in order to keep prices artificially high you would have to have a you know an an incredible amount of control in order to keep those prices high i mean traders don't dictate prices you know if a trader puts a price on something and it doesn't sell that's not the trader dicta- dictating a price for something that's a collector that's a buyer they're the ones that are in control of the prices if it sells for an item well then it sets a precedent for other items to sell for a certain amount of money as we have seen recently with certain last 15 figures uh, last 17 you know just all of a sudden going through the roof you know this th- th- this isn't one or two people keeping control of a market. It's too big. It's too big. And I, I, I personally do not see where he's coming from from this. I, I, I really don't. I think I think he, he, it was more of a personal jibe than it was uh, a factual one. That's that's my impression of, 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 it, of those comments. Yeah, it was a very lazy swipe, that was. You can sort of see there's some logic there, but it wasn't very well thought out and just uh, felt a bit desperate that those comments. I felt it was a bit of a straw man argument because it was making a very simplistic argument that somehow those who are anti-repro are economically invested in this and those who make the repro are somehow altruistic <laughs> individuals who are doing this for the good of everyone who are doing it for Ned especially for Ned and they're not making any money off it themselves which which is utterly disingenuous as a point I mean I do think we need to get Ed on for an interview at some point Um, is his name Ed or Ned Ned Uh, Ned Ned. we need Ned on so I think we all agree agree with that and I think yeah we're all right there I think it was very it was an easy shot I think uh, we're all in the same camp with that now, I want to have a look at um, a handful of the main creators of reproductions. Let's just talk about what we know about the fan strike back, because Retro Blasting really defend Chris Smith on this video. So first of all, what do we know that the fan strike back? So if we go to his website, I'm not going to advertise that on here. Straight away on the opening screen, you have Star Wars, G.I. Joe, Transformers, He-Man, all advertised. When it comes to Star Wars, we'll get to accessories in a minute, but on his main page, 
he does a, a custom Bantha. I think that's acceptable. All agree? Yeah, I think that's produced. Yeah. Yep. And then we've got, he does a carded collection run. So they're all set out like the Power of the Force. We've got EV99 on a card, um, Stormtrooper, Boba Fett. This is where it starts to get a bit mudded, isn't it? Right, he's got a slave layer. We we know that figure wasn't created for that. Let, let, let's look at EV99 then. So what is that going for now? Between 100 and 150 quid for a, a loose EV99? With an intact arm, probably a bit more now. Yeah. So he's doing this is this is fifty dollars for this figure. Okay. I can't see that he's got any markings on it. Is this the loose one or the carded one? This is the loose one. So he, he does it loose and he also does it on a card. Just going through it. See the customs I've not got a problem with. He's got a custom black pop-up R2Q5. He's got a custom shadow trooper. I mean, they weren't released. There's not a problem, but he's then got like custom carded Uzai cards. Now I'm I'm not sure the range that was out on them, but they look familiar, so I think they are probably probably reproductions. And then if you click on Star Wars and you go to accessories, I think I think this is where the issue is. So again, there's a third leg for R2 and all that kind of stuff to make that different. But you do have Luke Stormtrooper helmet replacement or reproduction. It's got on there. Um, again, it's not not a lot of money. It's you're talking ten dollars for it, but no sign of it being. Um, he's got he's got on his website um, not to be resold as original, but there's no no comment here that there's any marking on it. Which I think if you're a reproduction maker, you would surely stay that on your website. It's but. the things he highlights and focuses on, isn't it? So the features of the weapons, yes, they float, translucent under light, soft, high quality plastic. So it's all the stuff that you know, we, we look for as tells. I mean, this is the best box, isn't it? He does a hundred Star Wars action figure replacement weapons bulk box. Yeah. So a hundred weapons, which I'm, I'm sure is what you're looking at, Craig. It's, it's saying they float. New high quality reproduction available weapons show and are listed below. You can create your create your own mix of what you need. When you look through his list, there is literally everything covered there, near enough. So he's literally producing any weapon you need for your collection. You can buy double telescoping lightsaber replacements. I mean, there's li- there's just little things, but that's not all about Christmas. That's, that's that's by the bar. We we know that his he produces these things, and some will argue that they're customs. He's calling them reproductions on his website. So he's not trying to hide that fact. This chap has got a shady past, hasn't he? He used sales websites, Gumtree and Spock, as well as Facebook, to sell fake football kits. They were counterfeit football kits. But when his house was raided for this, they found 70 boxes containing more than 2,000 of these items. I don't, I don't, we're not, don't want to go into too much about that that story but that just gives you a bit of background about this stand-up bloke who retroblasting are defending so clearly this is where his he focuses on so that's that's your that's your first person we're going to look at okay and you can see why the community have an issue with someone that's just two areas i'm sure if we dug deep on him you find all sorts of things but for being convicted of something like that i think straight away puts him in a shady light and i can understand why he is banned from many of the groups ultimately it's criminal activity isn't it ultimately you know when you when you actually get down to the the bottom line it it it, it is and it, there's no question about it there's no gray area black and white it is criminal activity you are in, are infringing on copyright you are not paying the license fee you are profiting from somebody else's intellectual rights intellectual property um so ultimately it is criminal what he is doing so let, let's just let's just get to the bottom line that's what it is this is why people are against a, a lot of genuine collectors a lot of you know and rightly so 
let's not, you know, mess about. They, they, they do not see any place for this guy's creations in the community because he is creating items that are not marked in somewhere in, in many ways i know he's putting on his website not to be sold as genuine but once it's sold and it gets into somebody else's hands that's it as far as he can say he's, he's wiped his hands of it you know it's up to whoever buys it whether they disclose whether it's reproduction or not yeah it's understandable why this guy has generated as much anger and frustration as he has done and i know that he has marked some of his figures some of his um last 17 figures i think lee mentioned his yak face earlier and yeah you know i, I can see i can see why there is the the, the anger around the, the guy i really do Exactly. And you're right. I mean, it is just counterfeiting more goods. And if Hasbro wanted to, they could probably take the bloke down quite quickly. Well, this is the other thing that amazes me is that this guy has got what seems to be quite a professional outfit. He isn't knocking this stuff together in his garage. I mean, this looks like it's been manufactured out in the Far East and he's, he's buying it in bulk load and then shipping it over and then piecing it together. And it, I mean, I have seen a couple of items close up, so they do look really, really good. He's not hand painting these. These things are really well done. He's gone to a lot of time effort and money uh to create this stuff yeah it's 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 not what i would call a cottage industry it, it looks pretty professional so moving on to the next one craig we've you know mark poon's already come up several times but can you just give us the back behind him the backstory yeah i mean as, as lee said already he's a, a active customizer since the early 2000s sort of famous for yeah items that that people would struggle to get so you know the rocket firing fets we've mentioned and um reproduction vlixes but i guess one of the things he's he's associated with more than more than anything is the stormtroopers so he's he produces like stormtroopers in black uh, black plastic or they're painted black and the white ones and i guess yeah if you if you pick on the white ones particularly because they are figures that are more likely to uh to, to fool people although for my for my money you know there's nothing raises a red flag more than a super mint white stormtrooper so i think you know if they're fooling anybody they're, they're gonna get I'll garner a lot more attention, I think, if they're if they're super super nice clean uh, stormtroopers. So I think certainly those people in the know. There's a lot being uh, written. There's a lot of uh, guidance online, particularly good write up about his work on Imperial gunnery, which flags sort of some of the variants and some of the things to look for with his stormtroopers. Is he still active? So no, no. Uh, well, he's not visible. Whether or not he's still active in producing these things, or if he's moved on that's a different that's a different uh, a different question in terms of visibility he's not really visible in the in the game anymore now lee sticking with you now this one amazed me and um i've, I've seen him around blue snag man obviously I guess the name does produce a lot of blue snaggletooth but he seems to get a bit of a free pass and i then found this this thread on rebel scum and someone has said, why does this bloke get a free pass? And he went, oh, that's just Todd. He's a nice guy. But um, yeah, we just laugh at him. So just because he's a nice guy, does, does that give you a free pass to be able to try to fool him? Because his blue snags in an image look the real deal. I think perhaps this is me being a bit cynical, but I think I think um, there was a bit of a history of people buying buying legit stuff from Blue Snagman and they didn't want to muddy that water in the past, you know, and I think that in sort of in history, I think that was perhaps why he was treated a little bit more leniently than let's say Mark Poon was treated. So basically what other people I mean, we still see uh, people buying stuff off Toy Tony's 
Facebook group, um, eBay group, don't you? When it suits them, exactly. the same people shouting about him on on a forum thread, and then the next day they're uh, posting up a picture of some mint toy they've bought off him. And Double you standards. Spot, you can spot a legit Toy Tony sourced piece a mile off. You've got yourself an AFA ninety Meccano square carded Jawa with a with a mint clear bubble. Yeah, it's that's probably Tony's. You know. Yeah, I just I was just a bit amazed that this bloke got a because his his stuff's still very active on eBay as well. And that yep. moves us on to away from the toys, Mark, but to the packaging. A replicator boxes and inserts. And this is Darren Orm, who um to me is has has got some uh, bad form as well. I mean, this guy has been around for quite a while now. He concentrates on what I would consider the easiest thing to replicate and mass produce relatively quickly and easily and that's the, the the packaging once you've got a box and you've opened it out and flattened it out scanned it retouched it in photoshop you've bought yourself a large-scale printer it's it is literally a license to print money um, and like i say he's been around for quite a while now and he does a lot of reproduction boxes so existing stuff but he also does a lot of custom stuff. At this point, I just want to make out the point that custom and repro, two different things, completely two different things. So let's just you know make that clear. We're talking about guys that are reproducing existing items that are made to look and feel like originals and pass them off as originals, whether they like to admit it or not. They're in it for the money and to fool collectors. This isn't some guy, you know, creating a custom figure out of a beta figure for his own collection. This is entirely different. Basically, he's been around for a while. He sells a lot on eBay. His product is really quite poor. They are inkjets, so uh, they do not last very long at all and even if you were to put it in an acrylic case and put it on a shelf out of sunlight you better believe that that box will start to fade after a while that that's just the nature of inkjets they just do not hold their vibrancy at all certainly over time and they have quite a chalky feel to them as well i've I've held a couple and uh, they have like a quite a, a matted not like a litho printed box where you've got that sheen to it it's a different thing. Uh, they're, they're mostly hand cut as well. So, you know, very easy to see scalpel marks where he's got along with his room and he's been a bit careless and cut into it. These aren't uh, sort of die cut boxes. Um, quite, quite sort of poor. He has upped his game, I think, in, in recent uh, times. Uh, some of the recent boxes I've seen are slightly better. His 12 inch boxes uh, specifically do look very good but they look too good so it's quite easy to spot them a bit like a terminator you know the old ones were easy to spot the new ones are a, a bit harder just sort of going off his website he's got quite an elaborate website there's a lot of stuff on there that he's uh, done a lot of rare boxes boxes for, for for rare items so if you've got a loose a-wing you want a droid box he's he's got it there i think i remember seeing him ask for people with certain collections certain pieces in their collections if he could borrow the items so that he could scan them and then knock them off i don't know what their remuneration was uh, in exchange for that service but uh, yeah i do remember seeing him ask for people's uh, rare pieces in the collection so he could copy them and there were takers believe it or not uh, established collectors who were quite happy to send their rare items to him to uh, be um, copied so yeah he's uh, 
doing quite a lot of boxes, inserts, play sets even. He does, believe it or not, do a, a Palatoy Death Star play set, just the cardboard elements, mind you. So basically all the cardboard pieces that you need for a, a cardboard Death Star. And he charges the incredible amount of £150. £150 for a copy of a Palatoy Death Star. Now, to put that into context, I did a bit, just a quick bit of research. An original one sold on eBay. It had got a bit of wear, but it was all the cardboard parts to it, including the cardboard ring at the top. None of the plastic elements. A rather battered box uh, with the flaps missing at the end. But still, you know, it was a starting point for somebody to piece together a Palatoy Death Star. And that was only £50 more for the genuine article. Now, put that into context. If you wanted to sell the reproduction, you wouldn't get anywhere near 150 quid. You probably wouldn't even get 20 quid for it. An original, you will always get your money back and possibly make money on it. So it goes back to what we were saying earlier on about a false economy. It doesn't make sense. And I've gone back and I've made a couple of comparisons for things that I've seen on his website price-wise. So a Rebo band box, let's say, on a replicator website, it's £25 with the insert. Uh, including postage. I found one on eBay in relatively good order. There was no insert to it, but the box was genuine. The flaps were there. There's no rips. There was no tears. It was in good order, and that was £40. So there's a £15 difference there between a copy, which is practically worthless once you've bought it, to an original item, which is only ever going to add value to your original figures. And the satisfaction, knowing that you've got an original piece, rather than spending something that will ultimately look terrible in about 12 months time because the colours are faded and it's knocked and worn because you only have to touch these boxes for them to get a fingerprint on them or wear it's, the quality just isn't there and again snow speeder with instruction sheet on the website it's 35 pound that's excluding postage an original one on ebay in good order with the instruction sheet sold for 42 pounds so there's a seven pound difference just a seven pound difference between having a genuine one and a copy. Now, if you were to hold those two things up to somebody with half an ounce of intelligence and you said, which one would you rather have? The copy at £35 or the original at 42 which do you think they're going to choose? Of course, it's going to be the original one because you're only ever going to see your money back at the very least. It doesn't make any sense and get this right get this an empire strikes back falcon box yeah on his website that item will cost you 60 pounds plus postage on ebay recently i found an esb falcon box with the um original star wars image for 42 pound that was just the box there was no toy it was just the box 42 pound that makes his 18 pound more expensive so again this goes back to what we're saying about collecting and about how you collect and it's worth putting the time in if you've got the passion for it and you're prepared to learn and and run the marathon rather than the sprint you're going to get so much more out of it both financially and you know becoming part of a community and learning understanding putting together a collection it just makes more sense i don't see any satisfaction in buying a reproduction item like this none whatsoever I mean, one of the things I would also like to make a point of is Retro Blasting said that vintage collectors who were, who were anti-repro were elitist. Well, 
I'd I'd argue that that's incorrect because if you are if you are collecting on a budget, there are plenty of things out there that are in your price range. Particularly if you're looking at Darren Ulm stuff and you're and you're prepared to pay sixty pounds for a, a reproduction box. Well, I will tell you now, if you've got three or two, three, four hundred quid to spend spare, right, with a bit of time, a little bit of now and a, and a little bit of patience, I, I could put you together a cracking little collection that would be infinitely more satisfying than modern produced boxes. It just takes a bit of time and a little bit of time and a little bit of imagination and effort. That's all it takes. This isn't an elitist hobby. Despite what people say this isn't, there is stuff out there for everyone, for all budgets. You don't have to spend £5,000 on an AFA-graded Palatoy Death Star. You can pick one up for 300 quid in a box, and it'll be really nice. You've just got to look. You've just got to find them. I bought, uh, and Mark will remember this because you were with me at the NEC. Do you remember, Mark, when I bought that Palatoy Death Star for £320? I do. And it was cracking. It was ace. And that's in my collection now. And that wasn't very long ago. That was just a couple of years ago. And they was and there was another one there that was at eight hundred pounds. And it wasn't as good as the one I picked up. You can find them. You can find them if you've got a budget. Don't be scared of it. Just go and look. Go and dig. And that's where the fun comes in. That that hunter gatherer thing. That's where that that's where the fun, the thrill of the hunt comes in. Because you will find them. You know, I picked up. It was actually highlighted to me by friends at the NEC. You were, again, you were there, Mark. I picked up a next to perfect popper party with the original Sabre, everything, £150. Now, if you go and buy a reproduction, how much are reproductions? 50, 60 quid, something like that? I don't know. You don't have to spend £300, £350 on a popper party. You can find one for 100 quid. You can find one for 150 They are out there. That's the thrill of it. And network. What I'd say to new collectors, don't collect in a vacuum. You network with people. The more people you know, the more people you're friends with, the more your net is widened, the more people will will find things for you, right? You're not on your own. So that to me is the antithesis of being elitist. You've just got to have some investment in the scene. You've just got to have some investment in the community. And this is what this really comes down to with new collectors. Just have some investment in the community and that you're not collecting in a vacuum. Totally. I would just like to mention a couple of things to do with Darren Orm. Because obviously, Lee, we, we had, oh, it was probably four or five years ago now, at farthest from, but yeah. we sat in the pub and we, you, we, we had the display box um i think the feel of it and the way it was printed you could tell it wasn't a legit item yeah i mean you looked at the you looked at the small print and it was you couldn't read the small print on the box no it no. was uh, it was very very blurry you could tell it's like a second or third generation um scan of the or comp composite of the of the original yeah exactly and and i know mark you just mentioned customs you were saying that um there's a distinction between customs and some of the stuff he does to his customs. But I'm also aware that uh, you designed a piece and he basically customised your custom, um, which was an absolute disgrace. <laughs> they, 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 they say, don't they, that imitation is the, the highest form of flattery. Well, I'm sorry, but that just is not the case. <laughs> no, 
And it was awful. I was, I was so disgusted by it. I really was. And he'd taken my design and made it cheaper and far more awful looking than I could possibly It really was as well, wasn't it? He'd taken the character out of it, hadn't he? It just, just, it just looks so terrible. And, and you know something, the amount of times I'll see pictures of people's collections, nine times out of ten, it's Boba Fett collectors, Boba Fett focus collectors, and they have that display in the background, and it really galls me. I think, <laughs> God damn it. Well, do you know what? It's one of the things that I'm amazed at. So I was on his Facebook group for a long while, so when I did a little bit about him and was having a little little kind of like nose around, and the amount of people that are on there going, oh, this is brilliant, um, I can put my figures into how I remember opening them up and you're just talking about the prices, the difference in them. But people are lapping it up and he has got, I mean, you just said some people were willing to give him the scans, but he's got scans of everything. He's got all the bell displays. He's got literally everything, which I also find incredible. And they are marked, okay? They're marked with replicator or whatever it is on it. But apparently, if you get close enough to him and then request that to be removed, he will print them. Now, I've got no proof of that, but the word is that he will then print them without that written on them. So there is other people out there we haven't touched on, people like Stan Solo, again, quite an up-to-date person who's burning out these things. But I just wanted to give an overview of different areas. I do not fear the dark side as you do. I have brought peace, freedom, justice, and security to my new empire. Your new empire? So, I want to come on to just looking at maybe areas where reproductions could be considered fine if they were marked fine. We, we've already mentioned inserts. I mean, a box with an insert helps it keep its shape, helps it display better. I think if it's clearly marked, I, I kind of see why someone would do that, just to keep the box in shape. One of the areas that seems to get slightly more of a free pass and probably a reasonable reason, is uh, foams. Now, if you look at the foams on Dagobah playsets, you look at the foams on the uh, Chewbacca bandoliers, you look at the foams on the American Death Star, a lot of that foam is is, um, completely degraded, and virtually none of it is intact anymore. Even even if you were to buy a shop stock one and open it, uh, Dagobah, you've got a pretty good chance that the foam will be tacky, it will be collapsing, and it will be sticking to the side of the placer, and it will look pretty grim. Is Is there a reasonable justification for reproducing these? Possibly. Again, you can go back to things like um, the tin robot uh, scene, you know, where there may be a component that, that always fails. And so someone's like reproduce the component that makes the, the robot work. So, again, is that a grey area? Possibly. Is there no alternative? Well, maybe that's not uh, not so much of a massive issue. If no originals are in existence anymore and they've all degraded, what do you guys think? Do you think there is a justification for someone producing ones, uh, brand new ones, if, if um, original ones have all of them have pretty much decayed. I would be fine with it because, like you say, it doesn't matter if it's mint or not, you know, unused. The fact of the matter is it degrades over time, you know, whether you're using it or not, provided it was, uh, I don't know, maybe a different colour or whatever, then do I have a problem with it? No, not really, because it's one of those pieces that is going to, you know, uh, disintegrate anyway. Yeah, no, I'm... I, th- I think that's one of the areas, like cardboard inserts, where I think it's potentially okay. It's a bit of a grey area that uh, I would probably give a pass to, given the fact that if it was properly marked up or certainly uh, different colour to the originals, then yeah, I, I I would 
overlooked that. I would I would be okay with that. I mean, a lot of this comes down to personal belief, I guess. You know, it comes down to personal. What about? I mean, we're talking to two. You know, the foremost large size action figure collectors in the UK. What about things you can't see, like the elastic in uh, Chewbacca and Vader? Where's? So I'll be the first to admit. I mean, I've got over 40 boxed 12-inch figures now. Yeah. And the electric on my boxed IG-88 is a, well, it's basically a rubber band. It's a green rubber band on all of them. And yeah. none of them, none of them exist anymore. All of them have completely decayed. Now, I still have the rubber band for mine, and it is just a bag of green dust now. <laughs> I, that's all it is. It's a bag of green dust. So... I have sewing basically nickel elastic. Yeah, <laughs> I have. I have long. I, I buy what's it's of elastic. They're not the same as the originals, but the beauty of this is that it keeps it attached to the insert. Because one of the biggest problems with things like IG eighty eight, Darth Vader, is if you have them loose in the box and not attached to the insert, they damage the screen. They damage the front of the screen, particularly IG eighty eight. That's why you see so many of them with punctured with punctured windows. Okay, punctured screens. A lot of mine that I inherently will have decayed elastic bands. Yes, absolutely. I've just replaced them with these uh, with 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 this elastic. My uh, Lily Lady boxed Jawa, the original, has a yellow elastic band in there. Okay, if you look at old old photos of Jawa from the Amok Time Toys uh, find and all that, even though they didn't find them, uh, they they <laughs> like other people and they they bought the they bought the lot. This is back in the nineties. Mine didn't have the original elastic band, so I just put a yellow elastic band in there. It looks the part, and it keeps the figure attached to the inside, okay? I find that relatively minor and the least of our worries. <laughs> I, you know, a, a replacement elastic band to hold a figure in, in the, onto the insert is the least of my worries, you know? If I'm, if I'm then faced with a re reproduction weapons to IG-88, that's more of an issue to me. If I'm faced with with a very good reproduction box, that's more of an issue to me. So yeah, yeah. Um, if it comes through and it's shop stock and it's got all the original in, it's got all the original ties. Great, right, that's awesome. But when it comes to elastic bands and things like that, they degrade. And I would sooner have it secure than um, than have to rely on a rapidly decaying elastic band to keep the figure in. I mean, I think this is a fascinating topic. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with three. Okay, I'm gonna go round. These are things I've struggled with <laughs> my own scruples a quick yeah. yes or no from everybody okay okay replacement internal cog to fix your wing on an imperial shuttle mark uh, i don't have a problem with that i don't have a problem with that and there's some precedence for that sort of thing in vintage robots yeah Stu? yeah i i think it's internal work so okay replacing rusty staples in a comic that's they're getting so bad they're staining the pages mark <laughs> Yeah, I'm 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 fine with that, mate. I won't tell anybody about that. I'm not saying whether I've done these things or not. You'll notice, Lee. <laughs> I know people in the comic collecting thing. That's a big deal to them. So I kind of defer to to their better judgments. If it was if it was my comic, I'd be reticent to do that. Stuart, it's, I'm going to be honest with you. It's never something that would even come into my <laughs> my consciousness okay. that there's a problem. <laughs> Last one. You've got a beautiful mint helix pencil, like it's been left out of the factory, but the nib's broken. Would you replace the nib with the nib from another pencil, Mark? The nib? Yeah, yeah. 
What do you mean the nib? Well, the nibs, everything, it's never been sharpened. It's got, yeah. the, factory, it's got the factory end, but the, the point, the, the little bit of the, the end has snapped off. It'd be you very mean the easy to just the lead, yeah. It'd be very easy to just take one, nick one from another pencil and just stick it in the top oh, there. Oh, Craig, man, you need to get out. <laughs> you need to get out, mate. Honestly, lockdown has really got to you, hasn't it? So that's a yes. That, that's a yeah. I, I'm I'm okay with that, mate. <laughs> <laughs> See? Uh, Down would, with that. I just wouldn't bother. <laughs> You're not just you, here anyway, you know. Do you, do you know what, Craig? If it's bothering you that much, mate, go ahead. I don't. No, I don't. I. I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? I am. Um, hey, for a very small elitist part of the stationary collecting community, this is a big debate. Well, that brings me on to resealing. <laughs> now, Peter Davis. Now I'm coming to you here, Mark. Would think your resealing in using modern glue was reproduction, and he would not have it. Would not accept a reseal. No, 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 no. <laughs> Listen, listen, resealing, right, and there are grapes that will not discuss or even allow reseals to be mentioned or displayed within a grip. Now, I do not understand that, and it really does puzzle me why a reseal is not allowed. What are you meant to do with these figures that have got bubbles still attached to them? Are you meant to just display them without the figure? Is that how it works? Because to me, that is ridiculous. I have a almost complete Palatoy reseal collection. And believe you me, I have spent a fraction of what it would cost to put a mock run together. And once they are in a bit of GW acrylic, they look just as good. And I get just as much satisfaction out of looking at them as I would a mock. Probably more so because I've spent a fraction of the money, especially these days. You know they're original. They're all original. And people, I have this argument with some people on Facebook, you you know, they say, well, how can you tell if they're, you know, a, a mock or not if you come to sell them? Well, hang on a minute. If you are in the collecting game and you cannot tell if a figure has been resealed or not, you need to get another hobby because 99.9% of reseals can be picked up almost straight away. When you know what you're looking for, it's very, very difficult to see a, a mock has been lifted once it's been taken off the card. It's very hard to hide that fact. There's normally tears in the litho, the bubble, uh, the glue, and the, all the rest of it. You will be able to tell. And also, a lot of people just aren't really that bothered about hiding these things. I'm sorry, but I don't buy that one minute. I think no. the thing is with resources, they're not engineered to deceive. They're not engineered to look like mocks at all. They are what they are. They are open. They're the remains of opened cards from childhood collections. Them in themselves have some value. Them in themselves have some collecting value. They're original. They are part of the history of the toy line and in a way there's a there's a charm all to them themselves that a kid tore this off a card played with the figure you know and somehow the packaging survived how amazing is that that's brilliant that in itself has a has a value all of its own separate than than something coming from from the back room of an old toy store 30 years ago you know and also i don't have you don't have the stress of knowing if the bubble is gonna last glued to a four, five, six thousand pound figure over a period of time. You never have that worry. It's always coming off. So it is 
doesn't matter. And I'll tell you something, as somebody who's, who's got half a run of Palatoy 12 backs and 20 backs, mint sealed, that concern does play in, into your mind when you look at your stuff, you know? And in a way, I think, you, like your collection, Mark, you actually get probably more enjoyment in that respect because the pressure's off. The pressure, the pressure, is, the pressure is off, yeah, exactly. I'm looking at a, at a Death Star droid 20 back and I'm thinking, I love that thing, you know, that thing's ace. It reminds me of when my dad got me a, a 20 back Death Star droid in real when I was a kid, you know, it really reminds me of my father. And then the next thought I go into my mind is, I hope that bubble doesn't fall off. <laughs> I'm storing that flat because I don't want that to unbond. And then it's like, that ruins it for me a little bit then, you know? You know, I think to myself, perhaps I should get a reseal. <laughs> The things we own start to own us. Yes, don't they just? Don't <laughs> they just? You have to be careful with that, I think. I think we'll all agree. Reproduction bubbles and the recards, the, the reproduction cards are, are absolutely abomination. They are awful. One area where I, I do think reproduction is fine is some of the prop maintenance. Now, I've even seen people kind of saying, oh, no, you, you should leave it as it is. But some of these rubbers that were used for costumes or masks or puppets, they perish. And I think just, just tidying them up regularly is acceptable. I'm sure you'll all agree with that, rather than lose the piece altogether. Well, I think, I think what you've got is different cultures. I mean, if you start looking at some of the really older, older collectible scenes like Tin Robots again and, and props and things like that, sympathetic restoration is accepted and it's considered to be conducive to preserving the piece. And I think there's an argument for that. I think there's a very good argument for that. I think one of the things I saw was, was an American firm who do restorations of antique toys, tin toys mostly. And the restoration work that they do on the boxes are is just, it's, it's pure artisan. It's pure artisan work. It's absolutely incredible. You can't see how they've done this. And it's all archival. It's all uh, in theory reversible it's the same with posters they do the same with that and it's all to make them more displayable now in the star wars community and i'm playing devil's advocate here in the star wars community that would be completely intolerable it'd be completely intolerable for that but you go to props you go to tin toys this is it's, it's more of a nuanced argument from that perspective i can understand where the confusion comes in can't believe i'm defending him but where the confusion comes in where people go well if it's accept if restoration is acceptable in this hobby and it's acceptable here why is it not acceptable here it all comes down to cultures that's how the culture in star wars collecting has grown different priorities have taken over perhaps as time goes on Perhaps as years go on, that culture might change. And sympathetic restoration might be more acceptable as these things degrade. Well, that leads me on perfectly over to you, Craig. Now, many other vintage toy line areas embrace the use of reproduction parts. Action Man and Transformers are both renowned for using them. In fact, I went along to a, an Action Man event at the Palatoy factory a few years back, and there were just stacks of reproduction boxes and clothings on the stalls amongst the collectors. So a completely different kind of mindset and these other toy lines are often known to mock and laugh at the star wars collectors for their views on the reproduction items and are often called out to be elitist and i think it was only in the last fortnight that there was a thread posted over on star wars forum uk by chris dawson who admins a general toy facebook group who said other admins had this exact view um, and they've kind of taken the mick and laughing at the star wars community because of it because i think there's reproduction in everything from masters of the universe like we said transformers i know they're often i mean 3d printing's 
become quite a big thing in Transformers to get small parts that are missing. So why is it that other toy lines embrace it, that they're as old as Star Wars as a, as a brand? And are we elitist? Are we elitist? It's a very good question. It's it's fair to say that there are, you know, Star Wars collecting, it's a mature market, but it's not, it's not unique in that. I think there's a lot of money involved, perhaps more than other lines, other areas of collecting, but not exclusively. But I think there's, there's something in the numbers. I think it's probably one of the most popular areas of vintage toy collecting. And that means statistically, there will be more elitist Star Wars collectors than there will be elitist action man collectors just by the sheer volume of the people involved that's that's going to happen in terms of you know what's right for one area of a uh, hobby is, is wrong for another i think you know I, like all of us here I, I dabble in other toy lines and i you know i've as i said at the top of the show i've recently been examining my blasters with magnifying glasses to check the molds and all the rest of it and doing that with one eye looking at the battlestar galactica collectors merrily printing out ships that never existed like there's no tomorrow and having a whale of a time and, <laughs> you know <laughs> very true mate. it's very true <laughs> And you're kind of going, who's got it right? But, you know, I'm in my Star Wars bubble. I I did pick the the brains of uh, Chris Malburn at Metropolis on this because he's he's got years of experience in in things that go back to pre-war tin play. And, you know, I I, I do see it. I do see the evidence that it is more more lax. And, uh, you know, his, his view that while... There are a lot of anti-repro zealots, these hardliners in the Star Wars community. It doesn't have the monopoly on them. You know, there are hardline action man collectors and hardline Transformers collectors, just as there are in in, in Star Wars. This is not as many of them. And I think that, you know, every collecting community dating back to whatever people have collected you know, there'll always be this this scale of people who ha- are very very passionate and, and take no prisoners and don't compromise uh, at one end of the scale and they tend to be people who've maybe been in the hobby longer they're dealing higher end they've got more money invested in it and then you at the other end of the scale you've got people who are quite ambivalent towards it who are just in it to have fun and they're, they're dabbling and they're playing and that's that's you know that's transferable that's a situation that you can overlay in any in any hobby i think what's what's changed in recent years is that you know all of these groups have have got platforms that they never had before they can find each other they can amplify their voices so this quote unquote elitist mentality can permeate and and become uh, something that we are tagged with that we've got this reputation and i think that's that's part of it he, he said something else that i found really interesting and and I, I think it's worth just just mentioning as as we sort of draw this big conversation to a close. But he, he said it only takes one repro piece in a collection to cast doubt on the whole thing. So this is a guy who goes and buys collections. It's kind of what he what he does, often high end. And if he sees something in there, like I say, the the, the red flags start to appear and on both counts really if it's there knowingly you'll kind of doubt the values of the collector that he's dealing with and start to suspect other things the things he can't see the the internal workings of things but if it's there unknowingly he'll start to doubt the knowledge and the passion of the collector so you know one piece of of repro to a to a seasoned dealer in everything from template trains um, right through to sort of the things that we're talking about there sci-fi tv pop culture collectibles the presence of repro is a is a very telling thing thing yeah i agree with that unfortunately it does create a taint 
Like you say, I mean, I think there's um, there's probably a spectrum of uh, acceptance in all the areas of collecting, I suspect. It's like one of the things I've really been shocked by is I've dabbled in, in Transformers, Gen 1 Transformers, and um, and going in as a, as a novice, as just somebody who wants just a few nice original Gen 1 Transformers. Wow, it is a minefield with the reissues, the Chinese knockoffs, and... It's put me off a little bit, you know. It's uh, it's made me a little bit reticent to go into this, and and yeah, I go on the Transformers um, pages, and everyone seems to be seems to be okay to to an extent with it. I think there's probably a spectrum. I, I suspect there are probably Transformers collectors who are probably a bit more exclusively Gen One and original Gen One. So undoubtedly, I think let me ju- let me just sort of put this to you because i think it might be a psychological thing if say i'd got a 12 inch stormtrooper with a gun loose yeah and i'd got a 12 inch stormtrooper with a gun in a repro box and i was selling them on ebay and they were both the same price which one would you prefer to go for the loose one it's about confidence if anything the reproduction element is an instant red flag it's a negative and it would put you off and it's psychological what they used to say about jim stevenson was he was reassuringly expensive yeah Yeah, that's what they they used to say about him he was reassuringly expensive you knew that if you went to jim right and the and the three of us at least i don't know if you knew him stuart did you know him I know of him. I've I've not had any personal dealings with him, no. You went to Jim Stevenson to buy something. It was an event. And (laughs) you knew you had to dig deep in your pockets and you knew he wasn't going to budge on what it was. And and any discount you asked for, you'd be made to feel like, well, I'm an amateur. He was the latest. (laughs) But you knew confidence in what you were buying was absolutely kosher. You didn't have to doubt it. What you were buying was absolutely kosher. There would never be a single reproduction item on his store. So what I told you was true from a certain point of view. Well, boys, first of all, let, let's just have a, a general um, consensus on this because are the anti-repro groups now kind of fighting a losing battle? In this modern day, it's getting easier and easier to be able to create these items. I mean, the introduction of the 3D printer uh, a few years back, they're so cheap to buy now. Everyone's uh, can make weapons in particular are going to be the easiest thing to produce. Um, I mean, I've not got any experience of 3D printing, but you see it. But what I was amazed at, I, I listened to a few like general toy podcasts the other day I was listening to one and the two hosts were talking about designer toys. And I thought, what is that? And they, they went into it and it basically created your own toy moulds. And one of the hosts had bought the casting stuff off Amazon. He'd suddenly spent about 30 quid and managed to cast an original toy, all the parts, on YouTube. I typed in, you know, how to make a toy. And there is so many tutorials and it is such a cheap thing to do now that anyone can do it. It's, it's all there. It's how to do it is on your screen and you can do it for next to nothing. Obviously, when it comes to, to cutting the bits of excess off or and painting it that, that's a that's a different story you need to have some talent but is it the click of a finger now to how to do it how 
do the groups go forward from here? Because it's just going to get worse. I mean, this stuff's here to stay. They're, they're not getting rid of this. The boutique art uh, bootlegs are a different question than the mass-produced reproductions that are being done in the Far East. Uh, it's a different market. They're doing different types of things. Quite often, things like Sucklord and, and makers like that are... It's almost kind of a self-deprecating, ironic humour that they do it with. So it's, it's not done straight. And there's a collecting base for that, but I tend to find that that collecting base is very distinct from vintage collectors. There's some overlap, but largely it's quite distinct. Craig, Mark, you you probably have a bit of info. What what, what are you spending on a 3D printer these days? I'm I'm not spending any money. All I can think about when I think about 3D printers is, um, you know, the... uh... Dildos. That's going in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, keep that in, yeah. No, is um, the replicators on the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> We're pretty much there, aren't we? We're almost there. You know, when you go up to the hole in the wall and it says, make me this, and it, the machine will, will do it. So we're only we're only like a few years away before we can go into a shop and they'll have like loads of these printers lined up on a wall and you'll like tap in a code or whatever and it will make whatever you want there and then. But yeah, it's 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 fascinating to to think where where we're going to go. But in regards with toys, you know, I mean, like you say, Stu, it's here to stay. There's no denying it. There's no getting rid of it. There's no policing it. There's no other way other than to accept that repro is there. Some people will buy repro and some people will sell repro and it goes back to what we were saying earlier about educating yourself there's no excuse not to educate yourself if that's your motivation to collect vintage and keep it real totally agree you can buy a 3d printer for the price of a hot toy exactly there you go but it doesn't that doesn't buy you the skill and the talent to you know work the programs and create things but i guess people download stuff don't they They just download the files and press print yeah well boys so let's let's do a bit of conclusion let's go around each of you has your views changed at at all do you think there is a little bit that the groups maybe could accept reproduction or are you still of exactly the same opinion nothing's changed close those groups the groups that are kicking them out are doing the right thing by sending ned away what are our final thoughts on it well my stance on reproduction hasn't changed i leaving the debate with the same view that i joined the debate with which is you know a lot of this is about tone as, as repro debates go and i know we haven't had a pro repro per person in here defending tooth and nail you've been providing that Stuart with some balanced views but I think there's been I think it has been very balanced I think a lot of wisdom has been spoken by those old veteran collectors and I think all the talk about education approaching this in the right way that's that's where the conversation needs to go I think there are a lot of incredibly clever passionate knowledgeable people in the hobby and they are they are doing their utmost to educate people out there and you know these are guys who are doing it as we've discussed you know for the love for the passion because they believe in it they're not making any money about out of it imagine how that's going to have a step change when we all reach retirement age and we can just devote all our time to this so i can see a day where we you know we are going to stay one step ahead of the repros that there will always be that drive to to spot them and you know there will be a time where we can place it on our smartphones and go yeah that's a that's legit that one's not you know 
I think we will we will work towards better resources so that people who do care about this can identify this stuff and it will find a level. Uh, Mark? My opinion hasn't changed. I'm still anti-repro. Uh, I still don't agree with the motivations for creating it. I don't agree with a lot of the people that are creating it to make money off the backs of unsuspecting collectors or suspecting collectors, I guess. But I am not dismissive of it. I understand that the very nature of our hobby, the money that is involved with some of these pieces, the nostalgia that a lot of people hold with Star Wars and vintage collecting, I understand that there is a market there. And I understand that people will always buy it. There will always be people out there willing to purchase something for a fraction of the price. It it happens in all walks of life. I will not change my stance within the Facebook groups that I uh, admin on. That is that we will not allow the sale of it, but we will also be prepared to engage with people who want to know more about it and where the best places to go are to educate themselves. And I think I think if we can all accept that as being the basis in which to deal with reproduction items, then I think we're probably on the right footing. Lee? My position on reproduction hasn't changed. I don't agree with it. I feel it is damaging to the hobby. And I feel as the reproductions become more and more accurate, the more and more damage there is done to the hobby. And I wish it was never made. Now, having said that, we cannot we cannot unmake these things. If the reproductions were to stop now, there would still be thousands of pieces out there and we would still have we would be still dealing with this for years to come. So my position is there has to be an effort to look ahead. And what we need to do, much to the chagrin of many good people out there, we do need to open a dialogue with these people. Whatever their motivations, and I doubt their motivations as much as anyone else, we do need to open a dialogue with them. And that does mean we need to bring them in from the cold. Because if we do not then what they do is going to remain completely unregulated and they will just do whatever they want on this. The way you've got to do this is you've got to give them a way out. You've got to give them some leeway to not be cornered. A great example of this is is that whilst we may not like what he does, Chris Smith does mark the figures. That is something we need to say we're happy about that. But there's more you can do. And if you want acceptance and you want to, and you want to basically the wolves lay off you, then there's more you need to do. You need to be more responsible and think of, think of the wider community and not just those who watch Retro Blasting, not just those who watch Toy Poi, and not just those on their individual Facebook groups. That is the only way out of this, is damage limitation and management. And at the end of the day, if they do that, I'm not saying they're going to be accepted onto, onto forums, and they certainly probably won't be accepted accepted onto Echo, and frankly, they wouldn't be accepted onto any forum that I manage, but it does mean that they take a more responsible role in what they're doing, because we can't uninvent this, then they'll be left to do what it is they want to do. That is the only way out of this. We can't go back in time. As much as we want to, we can't go back in time and stop this from happening. We can't go and police every single reproduction that's out there and melt them down in some great pyre. We've got to do something which is positive for the community and will work. So we have to be pragmatic. And I think that means we've got to look very deep within ourselves 
from the anti-repro stance as much as they've got to look deep within themselves from a repro stance. Yeah, great points made by all three. I fall into your camps as well on this. Um, please don't think that uh, I'm pro-repro because of uh, the questions tonight. I've just tried to, to offer the questions that were in Retro Blasting's video. And I mean, before you judge Ned, walk a mile in his shoes. Because <laughs> after that, who cares? He's a mile away from you and you've got his shoes. So, I mean, just leave Ned out of it. Okay, but boys, it's been a fascinating conversation. Always with you, what cannot be done. Do you nothing that I say? Master, moving stones around is one thing. This is totally different. No, no different. Only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. Been an interesting topic tonight, boys. Um, been great to, to discuss it and get your views. I think um, the points have all been very interestingly debated. Before we do go, of course, go and check out our social media, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Generation Skywalker. Of course, go over to www.generationskywalker.com where you'll find links to the blogs, to our enhanced shows, to all our shows. Over to YouTube where you can find all our shows enhanced, plus some unboxings and blast points. There's all sorts going on over there. Again, and just search Generation Skywalker and you can email us at uh, generationskywalker at gmail.com if you do want to bring up anything we've discussed on this show. And uh, boys, thank you so, so much for your time. Lee, it's been great having you on. Real pleasure getting you on. Knew you'd be good for this topic. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you. So it is goodbye from Craig. Cheerio. Goodbye from Lee. Cheerio. Goodbye from Mark. Good night. And it is good night from me. We are Generation Skywalker. <laughs>